I would like to welcome everybody to today's webinar. I'm uh, Nicholas Bornois of Capital Link, and uh, we are the organizers of uh, today's webinar. Uh, before welcoming Martin, we are privileged and delighted to have him with us, but before uh, uh, welcoming him, allow me a minute uh, to express my thanks to all of you for joining us today at this uniquely interesting uh, webinar. In this period of uh, lockdowns, market disruptions, and restrictions, we have been able to contribute with our digital platforms to maintaining the industry's connectivity and the information flow. A month ago, we held with tremendous success the first digital conference, the first full-scale digital conference in shipping. Over a two-day period, March 30 and 31, 96 speakers, uh, 22 sessions, and over 3,000 delegates. I urge you to visit the library of information that still exists uh, and listen to the replays of the various sessions. We're now gearing up for our second digital event. On June 16 and 17, we're hosting our Operational Excellence in Shipping event, and we are honored that uh, the Secretary General of the IMO is going to be the keynote speaker. And we have a, an amazing lineup again of speakers. And today, we have the unique privilege and honor to have with us Martin Stopford. I don't think that uh, Martin needs any introduction. Everybody knows about Martin. I see so well known and above all, so tremendously respected in the industry. And uh, I am gratified that uh, we have been able to have him with us on uh, many occasions. As you know, recently Martin published uh, a white paper exactly on the topic of today's event on coronavirus, climate change, smart shipping, and uh, he's providing three alternative maritime scenarios between now and 2050. We are frankly very lucky to have him with us today to take us through his paper. And I have to say that uh, the response has been tremendous. We have at this point over 1,000 delegates online. So I think that uh, shows uh, Martin's uh, respectability and reach in the industry. And before closing, I would like to thank you all for joining us today. I would like to make a special mention and thanks to Annie Zhu, the head of our business development, uh, who has done a tremendous job putting this together. And Annie will provide the closing remarks for this uh, event. Martin, again, thank you. The floor is yours. Thank you for being with us. Nicholas, thank you so much for that. I mean, wow, what an amazing thing to be talking to you um, from my farm in the countryside. I mean, normally I do 30 or 40 trips a year and um, to come and do something in New York, I'd be maybe um, uh, get on the plane yesterday, long flight, overnight, do the session, looking forward to a, another overnight flight back this evening. And here we are able to talk uh, hopefully, to I, I just, first time I'd heard the number of delegates, which is just quite um, um, that, that, that's shocked me really. <laughs> Thank you for all joining in. Um, 
Nicholas mentioned that this, um, this lecture is going to be based around a white paper I wrote. And just let me give you a little bit of uh, background about how that came about. I, um, uh, in the last couple of months, I've been working on two or three different papers which contributed to this. The, the first one was a presentation I gave in Shanghai on the 3rd of December to the Shanghai um, uh, Marintech Forum. And that was about new technology, particular spin on shipbuilding. And then uh, at the same time, I was working on an article for the um, Society of Naval Architects and Marine Engineers in the USA for their uh, glossy magazine they put out in January. And that was about I-4 in shipping. And finally, um, I was inter interviewed by Marine Diesel magazine in um, just uh, Marintech. Well, in fact, it wasn't, wasn't really an interview. They sent me a, list, a long list of questions, which it took me about six weeks to answer. And so just as I was getting the answer off to them, I discovered that uh, the coronavirus was taking over and I thought, well, I can't. The, the, the interview was about technology and climate change, but I thought, well, I can't really um, send them an answer without putting something in about the coronavirus. And so I went back to my model. I'd been doing all of this in the framework of a, a big model. And there's no magic in models, but they at least sometimes force you to accept some blindingly obvious truths which are based on arithmetic mostly um, assuming the equations are right of course uh, and so i put all this together and over the last month or two i, I produced this paper which uh, bob jacks at um, jakes at sea trade suggested was really a white paper which is not a forecast it's a it's a paper which is designed to um, help you to get to grips with problems that lie ahead by putting laying out the picture in a hopefully fairly objective way and that's what I want to do in my comments this morning. So um, I'm now going to move into my slides and um, hopefully uh, you're now seeing the first slide in my presentation and um, Annie, who's the technological wizard today, will soon tell me, I guess, if, if that's not the case. But um, uh, here we go. I, um, uh, if any of you want to download the paper from the original site, there's the website on the first screen. And um, basically, hello, that's not quite right, is it? So there we go. Um, so... I think that the bottom line of my lecture this morning is that we are moving into a very, a very distinctly new era for shipping. I mean, you know, unprecedented is a word that's been used a lot. But I think the when you look at shipping as a whole, it's not just coronavirus. There are things going on in the industry which are going to create a change in the next decade or two that is I think on a parallel with the switch from sail to steam in the 19th century and I'll, I'll build my case on that and you can decide whether you think I'm right or not. Um, there's four basic building blocks for this. The first one is sea trade where of course we, we're thinking about the immediate impact of COVID-19 on the, the amount of cargoes moved by sea. 
But then there are also big geopolitical changes that are happening. I mean, China has been through its great growth phase, is now moving into a more mature phase. And the Atlantic powers, the G7, are all now quite advanced economies where you're moving away from um, heavy industry towards value-added sorts of goods. And so we need to take that into account. The second thing is climate change and responding to the problems of uh, global warming. I'm just putting my, I got myself an egg timer here that would go off when I'd finished, <laughs> when I'd been talking long enough to put you all to sleep. Um, I mean, the other big advantage of doing a talk like this is that if you want to, if you're on the front row and you want to uh, play, send messages on your iPhone, then nobody can see. This is fantastic. Um, the, the climate um, responding to global warming is the second issue. And of course, it's something talked about a lot, but we are still very much in the foothills of doing something about it. Then there's I-4 technology, which um, tells us that ships must get smarter. But again, we're sort of playing around at the fringes with this, but we haven't really grasped the whole nettle on it. And finally, uh, telecommunications, information management. We're getting some terrific um, examples on shore-based industries about how this works and how it can work. And we now need to put it to work in shipping. So these are the four issues that I'm going to try and pull together into three scenarios. And um, I hope to be able to give you an idea of the framework of change that we need to prepare for in the decades ahead. So the starting point, of course, is the um, immediate issue of the virus, the lockdown, the enormous um, fiscal cost of the policies that governments are putting into place, and the key question of how much impact that is going to have on the world economy, and how deep and how long the recession is likely to be. I mean, you never say never in shipping, but it does look as though um, we have some sort of recession ahead. And indeed, we didn't really need the virus to do this. Um, this chart, it shows you um, world industrial production uh, since the 1950s. And what, I'm sh what, what the animations are showing you are the eight um, uh, great big um, uh, crises, the eight crises that we've seen during that period. And uh, it, it's just to give you a perspective on this. Um, the first one that was the 1950s. It followed the, um, the boom when the Suez Canal was closed, when Aristotle Onassis made $80 million in six months. And there was a crash that followed and we had a collapse in world industry. The next one was the first oil crisis and the second oil crisis in 1979. Um, and so until the 1980s, it was oil was the problem. And then we come into a series of financial crises. Um, Michael Milken and the, um, the junk bonds, savings and loans in the States. Um, two smaller cycles, the Asia crisis and the dot-com crisis. And they sort of ran together to give us a long, flat uh, um, recession in shipping. Uh, the credit crisis in 2008, this one here, 
Um, that was the deepest. It was very, very scary when it looked as though letters of credit and things were going to bring trade to a halt. And we got out of that one. And we are now on the eighth crisis, which if, if your little picture, my little picture is over that, so I'll just have to move it. Um, and that we, on the first, on, in January this year, world industrial production was, into, was minus 0.1% compared with 12 months earlier. And that's what you see here. We've had this, and the big question is, where is this going to go? If we look at this in terms of, um, whoops, lost it, there we go. Um, in term, if we add seaborne trade to the chart, the, the gray bars show the percentage growth of seaborne trade on the same axis, same scale. And I think you can see that really, um, for m nearly all of these recessions, um, in the recession for industrial production was short and sharp, and the downturn in seaborne trade was short and sharp, as you can see here. That one was not so much, and there's the credit crisis. The one that bucked the trend was the 80s, when in fact you can see that trade grew much more slowly. There was four years of decline in trade growth, and the reason for that was that it was driven by this enormous rise in oil prices from about $8 to about $39 a barrel for oil, if I remember. And that had a big impact on the real economy, which was accompanied by very high interest rates as well. And I, I guess what's worrying me about this crisis we're moving into with COVID-19 is that maybe that the fiscal measures are also having a big impact on the world economy and also we have some behavioral issues another factor in the after the oil crisis was the fact that the uh, oil generation in the power generation industry switched from uh, using oil as the primary source to coal they'd had eight years to get ready to do that and coal was a lot cheaper in 1980 than oil and so there was a massive switch there and so i think behavioral what we're looking at going forwards in about the intensity of this recession is behavioral change and the impact on industrial production those are the two factors um, if we just focus for a moment on seaborne trade and look at the commodity structure i think there's two um, structural reasons that we can think of why we ought to be expecting trade to grow more slowly in future. And perhaps I'm looking a little bit beyond the, uh, the next two years here, but looking towards the sort of trends that we expect for the growth of trade over the 20 or 30 years till we hit the IMO 2050 carbon target. And there are two things to think about here. The first one is that there has been astonishing growth since the credit crisis of 2008. Um, seaborne trade is 28% higher, or was 28% higher, I think, in 2019 than it was in 2009. And that is a very, very big change. And I think with the sort of regional economic chain maturing, 
going on at the moment. We have to think very hard about whether we expect that sort of ex exponential growth to continue or whether we might not be moving into another era when um, perhaps globalization is no longer the issue as it has been for the last 50 years, but we're looking perhaps at more short sea shipping and more regional clusters. I'll come back to that one later. So that's the first issue. Second issue is that 40% of the cargo we move today is fossil fuels. Um, of course, some of it we're not actually moving, but, uh, but it's a big chunk of the cargo. And if the rest of the world goes down the road that um, they are, that the shipping industry is going down in terms of cutting its carbon emissions, then we have to ask whether we shall see that trade growing in, over the next decades or not. And I'll come and show you what my views are on that in a minute. Of course, I'm on my introductory bit here and you can't, um, you can't go through without talking about shipbuilding, bless them. Uh, it's my favorite subject. Um, I, um, as you can see, the shipbuilders have had a few super cycles over the year, the years. Uh, this is in gross tons, by the way. Um, it's the only, you can't get, I don't have a long series like this in dead weight, but you can see that we peaked out at over a hundred million gross tons in 2011. We're now down to somewhere around 60 million tons in 2019. It was about, it actually went up to about 69 million tons and has been hanging on in there. According to the order book, we'll be down to somewhere around 50 million tons over the next couple of years, which is not a million miles from the sort of normal trend requirement for shipbuilding capacity. Um, but it does raise a few issues. It be, when, when we come to look at the shipbuilding scenarios, you'll see we have a problem over workload for these shipyards over the next couple of years, or we probably will, that's my guess. Um, just finally, to finish this off, to give you a bit of a flavor of what the cycles felt like financially, this is a chart this is not real data, if you know what I mean. This is something I've, this is a chart that I've put together from many sources over the years. I believe it is good enough for jazz, as they say. In other words, it gives you a fair idea of the relative costs of running, in this case, a Panamax bulk carrier in $1,000 a day. Um, and I built that up from operating expenses at the bottom, uh, operating costs, interest rate um, with the spread uh, for the bankers, which is now bigger than the interest rate and the depreciation. And that, so the, the cost is shown by this, this line along here. Those are the costs. And the black line is the, um, the earnings, which starts off, off as one year time charter rates and is in later years is spot earnings equivalent. And as you can see, if we take the really big recession, the 1980s, you can see how hard that was. We went for five years when the earnings didn't cover interest, interest in any single uh, year, month at all. And the earlier one, the first oil crisis recession, and I can put these in actually, There's the, uh, first oil, the, the first oil crisis trough, as you see, 
was also very deep, but it wasn't so long. The problem of the 80s, it was a very long one. And then we come to the, um, the Asia crisis and the dot-com crisis, which was not really so bad. There was some money coming in here, as you can see, but not really, not enough to cover costs. Um, we'll pass over the outrageous amounts of money made in the, two th the noughties, as they say, and get back to the rather mild crisis after the uh, 2008 crisis. And I think that goes back to the, the fact that financial easing, very low interest rates, um, all contributed to make that a less stressful period. I'm not saying it was nice, but it wasn't so stressful as the previous crises. Well, that, let me now get on to my three scenarios. Um, and we'll start with um, the effect of the current crisis, the uh, coronavirus crisis. Uh, and my scenario one for the coronavirus crisis goes assumes that everything goes to plan and then after the, uh, the, the, the virus attack is under control, and I'll give you the details in a minute, we trade picks up in 2023. Scenarios two and three discuss less favorable outcomes where the sorts of problems that we all hear about every day keep recurring and stretch out uh, in, in the extreme case to 2025. And in the longer term, we bring in the climate change and the digital revolution into each of these scenarios so that they're really composites. They start with the coronavirus scenario and they then move on to the, um, uh, the, the climate change scenarios. So here are the three um, coronavirus um, scenarios. Uh, the, uh, scenario one is shown by the blue line, scenario two by the brown line or yellow orange line, and scenario three by the gray line. And the climate change scenarios are shown, um, uh, which I've referred to as trend is the highest. We reached 28 billion tons of cargo in 2050. The soft scenario where we meet, reach 20 billion tons in 2050, and the slump scenario where we reach 12 billion tons by 2050. And if we just quickly run through those in numbers, um, the mild um, scenario one, we get a mild coronavirus recession in 2020 and a few follow-on problems in 2021. But Sea trade picks up very quickly in 2022, and we're back to a 3.2% growth rate um, with historic compared, which is pretty well the historic average, with the usual occasional interruptions. The second scenario, scenario two, um, things drag on a bit, and the um, we have actually three years in which trade doesn't really go anywhere. It just goes down a little bit each year. This is just minor ongoing problems, but we just can't get world industry kick-started again. It's spread around the place. And once it kick-starts again, it picks up and grows at 2.2% per annum to 20 billion tons in 2050. And then finally, we have our scenario three, 
where things really don't work out very well. Um, I sort of modeled this a little bit on the 1980s because I remember the 80s, we, you know, year by year, things, we always did the classic forecast that things would get worse next year and better the year after. And it didn't really always happen. And I think you should have this in just as a reminder that things don't always work out as we hope. And in this case, Seaborne trade falls 17% by 2025, which is exactly the same as we had in the 1980s. So it's not any, you know, it's not something that hasn't happened before. And then um, it doesn't pick up very fast. The average growth rate beyond that is only 0.7% per annum. And we get up to 11.6 billion tons in 2050. And so really we've moved out of the growth phase into a fairly stagnant phase. Um, so that's, that's the trade part of the analysis. Now let's, let's move on to the shipbuilding scenarios because I ran all the trade stuff through the model with a whole lot of assumptions about the operating performance of the fleet, which I won't trouble you with, but um, needless to say, some of them are pretty difficult to make. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a long job, so these, this is not a precision exercise. But the shipbuilding scenarios, um, what I'm going to show you is that they are likely to confront the shipyards with a sharp downturn in requirements for new ships over the next two or three years. Um, but the point I want to emphasize is that requirements for new ships is an economic calculation of how many ships you need to manage the growth of trade. It's not um, an estimate of what actually gets ordered, which is something quite different. It depends on what investors do. Um, the key issue, therefore, I think, is going to be in the short-term counter-cyclical ordering um, for speculative, social, and strategic reasons. Um, and I think there are some issues when we get onto the technology for saying that people might decide to start order, ordering counter-cyclically because they want to take advantage of a situation to deal with that. Um, the longer term shipbuilding scenarios point very clearly in my view to the fact, the, the rather obvious fact that in the coming decades, we're going to need to rebuild the fleet. Um, partly to deal with trade growth, of course, partly to replace this enormous bulge of ships that was delivered um, at the, um, after the, the, the credit crisis, and partly to bring in the new technology ships, to redesign ships with the new digital technology that we have out there, which is absolutely there, and, um, and also to deal with the needs of climate change, where somehow we've got to find a way of propelling ships without um, emitting carbon. So these are the, to cut to the chase, these are the shipbuilding scenarios. The, um, uh, they're, they're based on three different assumed speeds. Scenario one takes trade scenario one and assumes the fleet goes at 14 knots. Scenario two, takes trade scenario two and assumes that the fleet goes at 12 knots and scenario three um, takes scenario three and assumes that the fleet goes at 10 knots. And what it does to calculate this, the, the blue bars, these blue bars show 
the actual deliveries, but the lines show the required deliveries. That's this bit here, which are based on, first of all, the expansion demand. That is to say, the demand for ships to meet growth of trade, which you see varies in each scenario. And secondly, the replacement demand, which is the tonnage of ships needed to replace vessels which need to be scrapped due to age or obsolescence. And uh, the coronavirus uh, scenarios give us, all give us this uh, basically um, gap during which there is no requirement or a very low requirement for ships um, in several years. And then uh, the second point that comes out of this is that as we move on all three scenarios, even the one where there isn't much trade growth, um, we do actually need to rebuild a lot of ships, to, to, to reinvest in a fleet of ships. And I think the logic says, if you're going to rebuild a fleet of ships in the 2020s and 2030s, you really need to do that with new technology. You don't want to keep I mean, today we're delivering ships that are not much different from the, say, the Panamax bulk carriers that were being delivered when I was in shipbuilding 30 years ago. We haven't changed much, but we do really, and I'll come back to this, we do have a lot of new technology available. And so this brings me to how we're going to get this technology into place, because at the moment, diesel, diesel is a phenomenally powerful and efficient source of energy. Um, it's, it's Achilles' heel is the, uh, is the emissions, but um, it's wonderful stuff. You drill a hole, out comes oil, you put it in a ship, and the ship does an absolute massive work, um, and replacing it is not going to be easy. And so, um, because we haven't got an immediate replacement for the diesel engine, I, my um, suggestion is that we need to think about my philosophy, if you like, to go back to the white paper theory. My philosophy is that we need to think about waves of innovation that will enable us to rebuild the world fleet with the technology that's available robustly and commercially and actually try it out in practice at sea. Because the problem with new technology is someone's got to take the new technology to sea and prove that it works in all conditions and anywhere in the world. And so I've suggested three waves of, um, in, uh, 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 of innovation that will take place. The first wave one is a wave of enhanced diesel ships. In other words, all we've got at the moment is diesel ships. We focus on developing them in the way that uses the new I-4 technology and the environmental technology with the well-tried diesel engine technology. Then maybe simultaneously, we have a wave of gas and hybrid electric powered vessels. We do a bit what the car manufacturers did. We start to put um, batteries in alongside diesel in order to optimize the performance of the engines and to cut emissions in sensitive areas. And then finally, we get to wave three. This didn't work very well, did it? My, sorry, I'm not very good at writing on charts, but you get the drift. This is wave three, zero carbon ships. 
and each wave allows the new technology to be developed and commissioned in a real world operating conditions on a gradual but cumulative basis and I, this isn't uh, my original idea i actually based it on a very i took a very careful look at the introduction of steam technology in the 19th century and this is exactly how it worked then you had a wave waves of new ships coming in and you had a bunch of old of owners running the old ships many of them sailing ships i mean and um, the two were competing in the market and of course um, it, it was quite uh, quite an interesting era so um, as, as i've said here there are parallels with and i'll pick, pick this up in a minute but here's my waves of technology chart since i've got into multiple um, scenarios here i've just run this analysis for scenario two this is the middle scenario um, i could of course i haven't run it for all the others but it takes too long to show you the charts and you get the drift from what we're looking at this one so the first point is that we've got in scenario two we got this hole in deliveries immediately because there isn't an, a short-term requirement for new ships uh, on a strict requirement basis but then we've also got the need to replace the, uh, the ships built in uh, the, the great bubble or boom if you like of 2011 and uh, how we deal with that is um, simply the three waves that I've already mentioned uh, wave one we design diesel vessels for slow speed fine tuning um, and we start to put in the new digital um, uh, technology. Uh, wave two, we develop low emissions and dual fuel. And wave three, we evolve designs for zero carbon. And here they go. This is wave one. And you see that actually we stop um, delivering um, diesel ships about on this scenario sometime in the early 2030s that still gives those ships nearly 20 years to depreciate themselves then we've got the um, the, the gas and hybrid vessels um, which move through and okay they're, they're not fantastic but you're testing new technology we're getting used to higher quality standards on the ships and we're really building the platform for the electric ships which come at stage three that's what's going on there and so the the gas ships which are a bit cleaner gas hybrid ships can be very clean indeed especially in short sea trades um, and so i just said i'd uh, that i based my thoughts on the, um, the the introduction of steamships in the 19th century and this is the chart actually this is the british fleet the green is sailing ships the black is steamships and as you can see um, the steamships it took 70 years to evolve steam technology from the first steamship which was barely a ship it was in america actually i always thought it was in england but i discovered recently it was in america uh in, in um uh philadelphia and um it took 70 years to get to the first really viable deep sea trading ship, Alfred Holt's Agamemnon. And then from there on, it took 40 years to build the fleet. And um, it was interesting that the Royal Institute for Naval Architects was set up in 1860. And um, because suddenly people needed 
technical help to answer the question, how do you actually build seagoing ships with steam? And I think we have exactly the same situation today. We really need a lot of questions answering about how we build ships with the new technology. Uh, and finally, you see that, oh, you see that the, the third wave, the motor ships started to come in in the 1930s. So this waves of technology makes a lot of sense. You can't do everything at once, not in shipping. Finally, the three emission scenarios. Um, emission scenario one produces seven, I just ran all the scenarios through um, and calculated the emissions um, based on the, the phase in of new technology according to my waves of scenarios. And the first um, scenario produces 771 million tons of carbon, twice the IMO target. Scenario two produces 321 million tons, that's below the target. And scenario three is 184 million tons. So that should, um, should certainly um, make uh, IMO smile if we can manage to do that one. And here they are. This is, uh, this is um, million tons of carbon emissions on the vertical axis, that's here. And um, scenario one, 14 knots, 3.2% growth of trade, three wave technology, uh, and there you are. This is the IMO target, you're way above it. This one, we slow to 12 knots as we're doing at the moment, 2.2% trade growth, three wave technology, we're well below at um, a little over 300 million tonnes. And finally, scenario three, this is the bars, and we're down to 10 knots here, 0.7% trade growth, three-wave technology, we're down to 180 million tonnes. So, you know, we've done, that's a very good outcome, I would say, um, given that we have the problem of rebuilding the fleet and everything else. Well, I just want to finish off now, and I hope I know I've gone on for about 25 minutes, but I do want to quickly run through the technology because so much of these scenarios depends on our ability to bring in the technology that will actually um, make these scenarios realizable. And we have to ask ourselves, is it possible? Um, and I think the, um, the first point I want to make is that I think we are at exactly the same stage with computer technology that we were with steam technology in the 1860s, because on the chart I showed you, it was 70 years to develop the first steam engine. And actually it's next year, it will be 70 years since the first commercial computer was put in place. This was Leo in 1951. The that had, Leo had 8.75K of memory and it used mercury tanks <laughs> as, as it, uh, for the memory. I don't know quite how it worked, but it, uh, <laughs> you see there's a lot for 8.75K, it's a lot of machinery. Um, 1966 was the first supercomputer which had a 10 megahertz clock speed, which was 10 times the going rate at the time. 980K of memory, cost seven million pounds. I wrote my first uh, Fortran program on this particular computer. And um, then today, you go onto Amazon, you can buy yourself um, an i7 processor, eight cores, 12 megabyte cache, 3.6 gigs clock speed, $393. <clears throat> or you can buy microchips for a few dollars, 
or you can buy this kit which I found on Amazon which you plug it into your uh, car this is for a car you plug it into which has all the technology that I'm going to talk about for ships plug it into the car you can sit at home and watch what your kids are up to in your car on your iPhone I mean you know the sky's the limit really <laughs> um, well anyway the vision very quickly because I'm going to speed up a bit I, I, I'm getting close to my time um, see these are the, the, this is the, what I want to see seamless cargo transport services fast reliable flexible services there you are there's my Egg time has gone off, um, so I'm, I'm, into, I'm into injury time now. <laughs> Fast, reliable, flexible services with fewer accidents and fewer accidents. Um, the, uh, the, the, the Swedish club just um, published uh, a report about oil pump failure, which is very interesting. It's amazing we still have this in this day and age. Cost savings of 30% in real terms as QA works, lower emissions, better focus on providing the services customers really want. Bigger companies might at last have a real value added, maybe because they have the resources to make all this technology work. And professional teams, and the, the capital T is teams is the, the way going forward, will run transport factories providing fast, flexible, cheap transport. And, the use of deep learning software, robotics, it's absolutely coming on leaps and bounds at the moment. And it doesn't have to be a massive system, although a big system helps, as I will suggest. And so I think that uh, looking ahead, um, it's, it's an absolute no-brainer. And fortunately, we have the digital communications to support this. Um, digital's not new in shipping. Clarkson's... Um, uh, actually spent more on communications in 1873 than it did on wages, believe it or not. Uh, mind you, they didn't pay much, brokers didn't, <laughs> brokers didn't pay, get paid much in those days. Um, but uh, you can see the, the massive improvements. And today, with the cloud, with uh, satellite, uh, 4G, 5G, with all of this technology, we've really got a way of communicating and working as teams between ships, which was just never available before. And one of the things that we need to do in the shipbuilders, I think, need to think about very, very carefully is changing the way the functional systems on board ships are designed and built, because there are eight major systems on a merchant ship um, I've shown them on this slide. I'm not going to go into it in detail. But basically, when the ship's built at the moment, these systems are put together mostly fairly ad hoc. They don't worry too much about the, the as long as the, the, the equipment is physically compatible, it's not optimized, and there's a ton of wires on board the ship. And so one of the things that we have to do going forwards is what the car industry did in the 80s. They did something very radical. Anybody who had a, a car built in the late 70s, early 80s will know that if you lifted the hood and looked down into the engine, there was these enormous looms of wires. And the technology completely got rid of those looms of wires by replacing wires with messages. You put in a backbone and you plugged the, the, you plugged the various systems on the car into that backbone. And instead of sending a message, 
down a wire when you press the button to switch the lights on and it goes down a wire and switches the lights on, connects the cable and switches the, the lights on, you have a system where you send a message to a remote um, uh, unit controlling the, 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 um, the lights, which then exercises your command. And this is, I put this uh, particular slide in, it, this sort of technology is used for proprietary systems in small boats at the moment. Um, but of course, that's a very different story from what we need to do if we want to uh, messaging to replace wiring in ships, then you really need a very big system and you need protocols which enable you to send the messages around the ship and each of these um, functional systems, propulsion system, auxiliary machinery, each of these has an ECU, an electronic control unit, and the ECU plugs into the backbone, which operates under protocols, which means you're sending messages just like you do on Wi-Fi under a standard protocol, which ensures that the most important messages get exercised first and you've got decent quality control on this movement around the ship. And you already have, for example, um, Sperry Rand has produced a navigation system which is totally integrated and in a sense will be ready to plug into uh, a system. And the one reason why this is so important is if you start putting all these electronics on board a ship, the first thing you've got to do is roll out upgrades. I mean, every system needs upgrades. And if it's, done, if, if it's done on different systems on every ship, rolling out upgrades across a company is going to be a nightmare. So I think we have to get some standardization in here. I think that's really important. Um, that, uh, we, yes, you see, you've got, this is the OBD2 plug like you find on your car, you know, which if you want to go and get that app so you can control what your kids are doing. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the, that's what it plugs into. Um, company organization, I won't spend very long on this, but basically we have the mean, the, the, the word going forwards is teams. We need actually to have people working together. That's the way in information-based systems, you work through teams. And we've got the teams on the ships, we're putting data through and into the company. We're going to need more people developing the systems for the ships, rolling out upgrades, building apps, really fine-tuning things. Just my, my model for this is Formula One racing teams. And um, of course, you've got your most qualified people, the technical support people will be supporting everybody in this system and they'll be working together. We'll be, the ships and the shipping companies will be working with their customers, with the ports, with the shipbuilders and equipment suppliers. And the whole thing is going to be like a factory. You're going to try and turn transport by sea into a factory, whether it's short sea or deep sea. And talking about short sea, I'm sure you've heard plenty of talk lately about the ends of end of globalization. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's run its course. It's been brilliant while it's been on. You can't do that anymore. I think we're going to, the regional economies are big enough to be largely self-sufficient. And I think we're learning the lesson of supply chain problems 
Um, and also, we do need to spread the manufacturing jobs and so forth around the regions so that they can match the balance of capabilities in the industry in, in each geopolitical group. And uh, the, um, the I-4 technology does make that much, much better. It makes labor less important in manufacturing. So I think we look, we move in that direction. Conan Nagel, who ought to know, say that customers are gonna be ready to pay for climate friendly transport. And the revolution will probably, I think, include short sea services. And I think short sea is a brilliant place to test this new waves of technology that I've been talking about. Um, we, we only have to go to the sort of stuff on land to see how substantially this is being done already in almost a miraculous way. And we also can remind ourselves that shipping is in the end by far the most climate friendly transport source as long as we do it properly. Um, and this chart shows you at the bottom here grams of CO2 per tonne kilometer from naught to 500. Uh, uh, air freight is 435, a road truck is 80, a very big container ship is three, uh, a, a handy bulk is seven. And these are just rough figures. We can do much better than these numbers. So if we can find ways of substituting short sea shipping for um, uh, land-based shipping, that's land-based transport, then you're gonna be a winner. And I think the digital technology can help you to do that. So ladies and gentlemen, guys and girls, you've been very patient. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Um, I think Annie is now going to switch me onto the full screen. And uh, as I understand it, um, uh, you, um, I'm gonna take a few, if, if any of you want to ask any questions, um, I'm going to be able to, um, uh, to, to, to chat with you a little bit either on the app, um, there we go. And I think there's probably some questions on here. Um, and um, I'm hoping that you're now, well, maybe I'm hoping you're not seeing me full screen. I, I was on a video to one of these things to Norway um, uh, a couple of days ago and nobody would put their cameras on because they're all worried that they hadn't had a haircut, you know. <laughs> As you can see, I haven't had a haircut either. Um, anyway. Um, I've got a question here from uh, Panos Mitu. Irrespective of the prevailing scenario, more uncertainty, weaker performance is added in the equation while regulations push for more investment in terms of efficiency, new fuels, etc. How can shipping investment in this decade prove more successful than in the past? What will be the key to sustainable shipping business? Uh, well, I have to say, Panos, you certainly kept uh, to the chase on this one. I, I, I love to quote history. I'm going to, I, what, many years ago, I spent one beautiful sum, uh, summer sitting in the garden very early in the morning. I go up for an hour every morning and read brokers reports from the 19th century. And the interesting thing was that between about 1870 and 1890, they were endlessly depressed. They kept saying, why do ship owners keep ordering these ships? You know, we've got masses of ships, the rates are terrible. 
And it was only when I started doing the research for this paper that I realized that what was going on here was you've got three layers of ships in the market. You've got the liner companies were ordering new ships because they, could, they were serving global empires and they could see how they could make money out of ordering um, uh, new cargo liners with passenger accommodation, faster, more reliable. The boilers got better and better with each decade and they could make money out of those. Meanwhile, the guys um, running the, the last generation of ships, which they'd, the, the liner companies had sold to various other ship owners, and they were struggling. They could make a living out of them, but you know they, they were constantly struggling at the bottom of the market. And there were people still running sailing ships, which had very low capital costs. And the, um, what happened was that the, the Norwegians went to a very good talk by Victor Norman a few months ago in Bergen about um, the history of ship owning in one of the towns on the south coast. And this, the story was that they stuck with sailing ships for um, uh, the, the 19th century. And they could make a living because you could get into the Chilean guano trade, you could get uh, into the Australian grain trade, where the, the winds were favourable and you could make quite good money with sailing ships. Not a fortune, but you could make a living. And I think that's the message. So I think my answer here um, Pana says, well, you don't know if you can make a profit, but I believe there will be um, companies which are far-sighted enough to realize that if they build the, the new technology in and use it properly, they will be going to their customers and they will be offering them something significantly better. They will actually be tracking door-to-door -door carbon footprint much better, which as you saw from Colonel Nagel, they will pay for that. And I think that you will find that um, that, that actually those who are smart enough to do this and to run their operation as a transport factory will actually be able to make a living. And there will be other companies that will trade out the old ships and they'll do very well by cost minimizing on, or at least they make a living, you know, and let's face it, that's what you do in shipping. You generations of seafarers and there's, there's thousands of years of them have made a living. That's what it's about. So that, that's my answer to, to that question. Um, I don't think we get a chance to have a debate here, Pelos. I'm sure you would answer me with it. Uh, <coughs> so um, there's a button here that says answer live. Does that, um, don't know what that does actually. Um, I'm going to, um, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that I am talking and people can hear me. Um, but uh, <coughs> Uh, let's um, let's go on to this next question from um, uh, Michel Pierre Flippo. Um, why is the greater need of new building of ships if ships are sailing at the design speed 14 knots? I thought that if ships go slower, you'll need more trade. Um, and incidentally, um, uh, this is an aside to Annie, who's on the. Uh, in the hot seat with the technology. Annie, if you can send me some sort of um, signal, like a text or something, just to let me know that someone is listening to me out here and I'm not sitting in my uh, in glorious isolation talking to the cows outside, who incidentally I can see at the moment. Um, but anyway, I'll assume for the time being that, um, that this is, um, th that you can hear me. Um, oh yes, okay, got a message here. We're all listening to you, yes, okay. Well. 
that's a nice way to put it, of course, hopefully some of you are on your iPhones, but still. Um, well, I, the answer to that is, I, uh, um, Michel-Pierre, I didn't go through all the many, many assumptions in the model. Um, but basically, on the 14-knot scenario, we also have 3.2% growth of trade, and so, um, which um, basically, on a compound basis, that neutralizes the fast speed. So actually, you do get more demand at 14 knots than, um, uh, the, 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 despite, um, uh, because of the fast trade growth. Whereas on the slowest trade scenarios, we also get trade growth. So I, I mean, I just chose to do it that way. I, I put the all the good assumptions, all the high growth assumptions together, and all the um, the low demand assumptions together just to see what happened. It's easy. Well, it's easy to change it, but you know the trouble with these things is you end up with a thousand scenarios, and it's hard to explain what you've done. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that technically is is the reason. Um, I've got another question here um, from um, uh, Lukacs Luaski. Luaski, do apologize, I can't pronounce it, but, but um, what would we be expected to impact seaborne trade if the production shifted closer to consumption and there was a material, e.g. 10% reduction of current trade flows out of specifically Asia, to Europe and North America? Um, I mean, these are really good questions and they're things that I have sort of um, sweated over the hot model looking at. Uh, and um, the answer is that if, if we take the question as stated, we would get a reduction in tonne miles, obviously. If, for example, you start to move manufacturing trades from say Asia to Northwest Europe or Mexico, USA, and you're moving them around by, um, by, by short sea shipping, then uh, of course you would have, uh, a first of all, a demand for a different sort of ship. Secondly, you would have an enormous demand for logistics because that whole thing, you know, short sea shipping is more complex in many ways because you make many more port calls. Um, but you wouldn't have the demand for the very big deep sea or so much demand for the big deep sea voyages. And I mean, that's just the way it would take a while to develop. That's just the way the cookie crumbles, you know. I, I mean, this isn't going to happen overnight. Um, the, um, I think um, just, uh, yes, I think that hopefully that's the answer to that question. Um, but, um, uh, let me take one here from uh, Mikael Leto, if that's the correct pronunciation. How will the shipping finance turn in the next 30 years? Blockchains, hedge funds, activist investors, investment and merchant banks. Uh, <laughs> um, I have to say, this is one I didn't do in my model. Um, I mean, ship. I, let me make one general observation. I think having... Um, watched uh, Greek ship owners for the last 50 years, it astonishes me how quickly they are to spot the way the wind's blowing in terms of finance. 
you know, and um, I mean, I, I, I was never um, a great fan of um, shipping on Wall Street, but, you know, the Greeks were off there, and I wondered, why did they do that? And looking back, you know, it was, you know, it, 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 was, the, it was the right thing to do, and they did it, you know, um, very well. And I think that the, um, well, the blockchains and documentation um, is, you know, that's something it's a nice bit of tidying up. I mean, PDF was a nice way of tidying up, sending documents, sending type documents around the world. Uh, blockchain just secures that process. And I dare say there's obviously a lot of work to be done making that work. I, I, I was actually on a, a call with um, 30 or 40 ports last week and they did a we did a round robin of what was going on in the ports and someone asked this question is you know is this sort of blockchain really are they really tightening up the documentation on um on sea transport at, through ports and the general feeling was that really not you know this isn't happening yet there's so many people involved in the the chain here on the on the trade that it's, it, I think it's proving quite difficult to get everybody to, 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 to play the game together. Um, hedge funds, investors, investment in merchant banks. Well, I guess that's what uh, a lot of the people who I hope are listening today will be applying all their enormous ingenuity to is coming up with, um, with the next um, uh, mousetrap for uh, catching a bit of money for the shipping industry. I mean, that's... Uh, that's the way it goes. Um, I, I've watched it, it, the, the ingenuity of the banking industry is endless. You know, it's um, there's always there's always a new way. And it was one of, I, I found it one of my fairly brief time in banking. I was astonished at how quickly banks moved. Having worked in manufacturing, it's amazing how quickly financial institutions are able to adapt. So um, I think you need to just watch and see what the what the players get up to in the next year or two. I'm sure they'll find some money somewhere, you know. <laughs> um, the, the next question is um, uh, from um, uh, uh, oh, Mikiel again, yes. Will we see more consolidation of companies as environmental regulation toughens? Will we see more big winners in each commodity segment? Well, Mikael, I, I have been working on a new edition for my book and I have a new chapter on companies and accounts. And I spent a long time looking at this big company versus small company um, structure in shipping. And at the moment, it is still very much small companies. I mean, the average ship, shipping company, the average real ship, shipping company, even if you take out the sort of legit one ship companies, not the blast plate ones, but if you take two, two ships upwards, the average ships, the company size has five and a half ships. A lot of companies have between around sort of 10 and 30 ships is a very popular size group. And it seems to me there's a great critical mass for shipping around maybe 20 or 25 ships. That seems to be an area which shipping companies quite like. Uh, and then you just have one or two very big companies that have got, you know, 100 plus ships. And I think the, the answer to this is that um, the, I'd say the problem to date is that 
that big companies haven't really got that much leverage to get their teeth into to give them a genuine commercial advantage. That's the problem. Um, and, um, you know, they run, they run their companies as a, f a federation of one ship companies. That's how you do the accounts. And each ship is a separate business center. And the great thing I see of that diagram, the um, running a, a fleet of ships as a transport factory, is that you do start to give big companies something to get their teeth into. If they can really get that team of experts building value-added um, uh, algorithms, then you start, and, and it has to be value added. I was really impressed when I, one of my friends, uh, well, it's actually one of my friend, son's friends, um, ran the, the racing team, technical team for um, uh, McLaren, and um, he, he spent his whole, I had 120 people in his team, and they spent their whole life trying to dream up some minute way to make the car go better. And then they would figure out what data they needed to make that happen. And they would quickly um, uh, program an FPGA or something, stick it on the car, try it, see if it worked. And if it did, then they'd program it into the, the ongoing structure. And I think that sort of forensic technology is the sort of stuff, uh, they, they claim they change their business model every 17 minutes, you know. And I think that's the sort of philosophy we need to do in shipping. And um, I think that a big a, companies, big or small, who do that will get an, a, a financial edge. And because in lots of ways, and I won't go into it now, but I think, you know, they'd be astonished how much they do. And um, I, I think that basically... Um, will give bigger companies an advantage. It'll make it hard for the very small ones because five ships doesn't give you much overhead to play with. Okay, um, and here's um, a question from my uh, good friend, Roberto Giorgi. <laughs> Hi, uh, Roberto. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Um, Martin, do you think it will be the end of the very large container vessels? <laughs> Um, well, I've been predicting the end of the very large container vessels since 2001, and it hasn't happened. It just proves to me that in shipping, people do what they want to do, you know. <laughs> and um, I, I, um, I was employed by the port of Hamburg on the strength of this to do some studies for them, because, um, of course, deep drafts weren't so good in Hamburg. Um, and the fact is that whether rightly or wrongly, the um, liner companies have gone down this road of very, very big ships. Every time I run the model, I find that when you get past 8,000 TU, the economies of scale diminish substantially and the costs for the ports start to increase. And I, my own feeling is this, actually, Roberto, that um, I think if we were to go down the road of maritime clusters that I showed you in that chart, um, then the sort of thing, of course, you're still going to have interregional trade, but we will do what McKinsey thought we would do with containerization originally. If you're going to build a 25,000 TU ship or 30,000, if you like, you have it running, doing shuttle service between very big um, uh, distribution points in Asia and in Europe. And you just, they shuttle back and forwards and then everything is taken out on a sort of Uber-esque short sea 
shipping service where you can log in and get you can track your container and you can hire direct transport to your local port in a small ship and so you you get door-to-door -door transport but you only use the very big ships on one port each end or maybe two ports each end type of shuttle not this business where you take 23,000 TU ships and you take them around um, 12 or 14 uh, port calls and you also have to manage your in, your cargo inventory as very well as we, the cargo manifest that's another issue we need to get our digital stuff sorted out on that so that that's my quick answer to that one i don't think it's the end of very big ships but i think we might change the system a little bit um now um what have we got we've got oh paul packard another uh, another uh, friendly one there. Hi, hi, Paul. Um, what is the risk? Oh, just a minute. You've put, you've disappeared. Uh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. What's the risk of obsolescence, particularly for those ships built between now and the third wave zero carbon coming on stream? Um, look, guys, these are really good questions. I wish I'd had someone checking these questions at me when I was writing the paper because. Um, you know you could frame them these are this is where it's at um i think uh, and i know a lot of owners are really worried about this and uh, and a lot of financiers and i think the answer i i did try to run this one in in the scenarios and my view is that um shipping doesn't change that quickly and i think there is room to build the first generation diesel ships so the, the first wave diesel ships you know, between now and 2025, 28, you've still, I reckon on my wave scenario, you've still got a good 20 years to trade out these ships. Although you would have to accept that the, the ships would not be trading, uh, they, they'd be in the bottom tier of the market for part of that period. And that was exactly what happened with, um, the, 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 the steamships that, I mean, Alfred Holt's Agamemnon had 60 pound boilers. Um, by the time you got to the 1890s, the ships had three or 400 pound boilers or two or 300, I forget the exact number, but they were massively more efficient. They used a fraction of the coal. Similarly, with the first diesel engine, it's very interesting, the Seldania, the first diesel ship, which was produced by Bermaster and Wayne in 1912, that actually had to be re-engined three times before it was finally scrapped in 1938, I think. So I think the answer here is, Paul, that, that what you'll be doing is probably expecting to upgrade stuff. So I'd expect ships to be built in a way, there'd be some merit in building ships in a way where you, you, some of the stuff, some of the equipment you could upgrade as time went by and um, perhaps you'd look at the layout of the engine room, leave space to, to, to put in new equipment as it became available. Um, but in terms of the, um, the, the zero carbon ships, we just don't even know whether they're gonna be viable. I mean, there are prototypes, but there are big question marks over the, the fuel cell at the moment, the sort of consensus thinking is that you have a fuel cell burning um, maybe ammonia or um, liquid hydrogen as carriers 
But at the moment, the way you produce liquid hydrogen and ammonia is from, from fossil fuels, from methane, from, and, so, uh, from, 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 and so you need to um, find a way of sequestering the carbon that you produce when you produce the hydrogen and the ammonia. And they are both very nasty things to transport. I mean, people I've talked to about the transport suggest that really it is very problematic. Um, the, I mean, ammonia, if you have an explosion of ammonia, you can wipe out a town in five minutes, you know. It's, it's not a very nice gas. And hydrogen minus 230 degrees, is it? Um, and so then there's going to be a long queue of people who want green hydrogen. So I think the answer to this is that um, you have to do what, you, and my view is you take it one step at a time, you do what you can do at the moment. And what we can do extremely well at the moment is diesel ships. And I think we just try to add some of that technology. I was showing you about the replacing, um, doing for ships what we did for cars, what, the, the, what Bosch did for cars in the 80s, um, and uh, replace wires with messages, you know, and that sort of thing. Lots and masses of great equipment coming available if you have shipyards and ship owners able to put it together. And that was the message, you know, someone has to make this work. Um, and um, Alfred Holt was the guy in 1865. He was the guy who put, he used to be in the railway, a railway engineer. He pulled all the steam technology together and built a ship that really worked. And this goes for bankers. This goes back to the old story. You want to, you know, you should be banking the Alfred Holt, who actually has enough technical grasp on the industry, on the business and the technology to actually make it work. That's the thing. Um, okay, um, let me see. I'm getting lost on these questions now. What? Uh, oh, here's Hamish Norton. Hey there, Hamish. <laughs> Um, this is really weird sitting, I mean, my cows have suddenly appeared out the window, you know, um, we only put them out yesterday and I'm able to look out at the cows and talk to Hamish Norton at the same time. I mean, isn't this fantastic? <laughs> um, uh, it says Capital Link, oh, I switch my, um, I switch my. Yeah, I've unmuted. I, I've got a message here that says Capital Link would like to answer this question live. Oh, you want me to, do you want me to type the answer? Um, okay, anyway, let me back to, uh, that, that'll sort itself out. Um, no, okay, that's okay. Sorry, Hamish. Um, I spoke about three waves of technology. What about diesel engines burning ammonia? Um, yeah, sure. I think there's, um, I, I, I mean, the, um, the internal MAN are absolutely flat out trying to find ways to save, the, to, to, to use the diesel engine. And if you can do that um, and you can make it work, that's fine. I, as I say, there are these big issues over ammonia as a fuel. It's, it's not a very pleasant thing to handle. And um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that ammonia has to be produced. And as I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, 
you produce carbon in making the ammonia and um, at that stage you have to find ways of sequestering that, that carbon but if you can get all that sorted out then I would say at the very least it's going to be an expensive fuel compared with uh, bunkers which I notice are now down are they now down below $200 a ton amazing um, so that's I don't know if that's an answer but no doubt you'll come back if it's not um, uh, Lawrence um, Debart, what do you think will be the impact of EU emissions restrictions on the adoptions of new fuels and technologies? Um, well, I sat through a webinar on this last week um, by one of the people from the Commission, and I'm sorry to say I can't remember a word of it actually, except I got the, the body language suggested that they're going to do lots of things that ship owners probably won't like very much. Um, uh, I think that the EU generally wants to grasp this, um, the nettle of emissions. And the big problem is that IMO is a, an amazing organization. I think it has 172 members um, from uh, by definition 172 different countries and to get 172 to make a decision on anything is a remarkable thing and I do believe that to get the that, that the April 2018 decision on the carbon target was um, was was remarkable and I hope that they all had a few bottles of champagne to celebrate because that was a great great result uh, the EU I think would like them to go much faster and I think that they would like um, more harmonization over the reporting of carbon emissions, because as I understand it, and don't take my word for this, but EU, the IMO is uh, monitoring emissions, um, and the EU is also monitoring emissions of EU vessels. And I think that, that they are trying to harmonize those two and I'm sort of watching this space to understand because I do think I mean the one thing you could really do which would be enormously helpful would be to get the emissions of a cargo um, door to door on the um, onto the dashboard of the uh, CEO of the shipper company the shipping company and for that matter, the regulator. I think if you get those bits of information properly validated into the right hands of the right people, then we could start to move forwards. Um, because you know, you suddenly realise there was a famous thing. I, I was understand that one of the things Maersk did um, uh, was they did a, a very big benchmarking analysis on their strings of container ships. And one of the, this is a few years ago now, and one of the very clear um, influences, the biggest single influence on um, uh, fuel consumption uh, turned out to be the master. And um, after that, they really focused on um, making sure that the, the uh, instructions and the communication with them and the monitoring of the mast, the ship's activities were very well uh, monitored in that sense. And I, um, I think that we have the technology to do this, but I've tried with working with shipping companies. It is not easy. It's very difficult to do. Um, 
Okay, what else have we got? Um, uh, this is uh, uh, Costas Hasiotis. Um, uh, what about LNG as a fuel? Should owners look at dual fuel ships um, when they start ordering? Well, I had a very nice, I spent a long time when I was working on the new edition of my book, which I have a, a chapter about engine techno about technology in it. Um, I spent a long time looking at the at diesel engine, and I think the, you know, I mean, the the dual, the MAN dual fuel engine is um, very impressive. It's got as well established now. Um, the, um, the I have um, uh, the, the, had chats with a Finnish company that had just taken delivery of an LNG fueled bulk carrier, strangely, of twenty five thousand tonner, uh, and they seem delighted with it. The fuel's cheap. It works at the time I was speaking to them. It works fine. Um, I had another chat with another owner who'd retrofitted LNG, and they did it. They ran it for two or three years, and you know, said it was you know it was barely worth the effort in those days. Um, so I think really the, the, the you know the, the answer to this is that you have to convince yourself that you can make it work and that um, you do get, make sure you do get your emissions, that you record them properly. And uh, I think at the end of the day, if you believe in climate change, it, it is, LNG is something you can do, uh, which will guarantee to reduce your emissions and it's clean in every way. Um, and that's not a bad thing. And the fuel at the moment at least isn't too expensive. And so I think it's tomorrow's, it is not exactly tomorrow's technology, but it's, it's not yesterday's technology. That's the good thing. So as you saw in my scenarios, I do think that LNG, um, once the industry sort of gets used to it, it's very mature technology. The, the engines are fine. Uh, why not? Um, so thanks, uh, Costas, for that question. Um, uh, Rajan Vasudevan, um, not, not for uh, uh, with governments bankrupt, where will the capital come for the industry? Um, will the industry get taxed more to fund government? Well, I think my, my, my nasty feeling is that the capital is going to come from my pension fund. I, I've got a, got a feeling we're all going to come out of this without <laughs> a little bit poorer than we were before. But, um, but as I often say about shipping, you don't really do it for the money, do you? You know, you do it for the fun. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, going back to the earlier answer, I think that, um, ship owners will find the money somewhere, you know. Um, uh, um, is, um, Mr. Chowdhury, um, is the waves of, in the waves of technology, why is there a spike in the third wave around 2035? That's totally driven by the um, replacement. Uh, um, I, I didn't, well, I, I didn't do anything too clever about running replacement scenarios. If I'd had more time, I would have looked at some short-term scrapping of those ships delivered in 2010, 2011. If we do get on the third scenario, the low scenario, deep recession, we would get some scrapping of those ships, I would expect. But um, I, I just, all I did was I just sort of 
um, used uh, delivery the remaining ships over two or three years, 25 years earlier as a basis. And that's where that spike came from. It's just pure arithmetic that says you've got to replace those ships sometime, you know, that's all. And that's, that, that's true. I mean, you've got to replace them sometime. Although, as we discovered in the 90s, you can never be quite sure when you guys will go on and uh, replace them, you know. <laughs> um, uh, Thomas Mayer, um, oh, how ni yeah, nice to hear from you. Um, your outlook is an aggregate for the whole fleet. Other than short sea shipping, what other sectors do you think are likely to take the lead? Tankers, LNG, dry bulk. Um, well, I didn't do this. Um, one of the ones I, you don't mention that I would love to know about is cruise, actually, because I've been wondering about buying some carnival shares. Um, I didn't do it after 9-11 and um, regretted it. But um, these things, um, I think if I can preface the answer uh, by saying I think the big issue that worries me about the, which I didn't really focus on at all is the behavioral issue. This coronavirus is changing a lot of things, just the fact we're having this discussion now. I mean, I'm getting far better questions now than I've ever had in a, in a conference. Um, and um, I can't see why I should go and spend five grand flying to the, uh, the Far East when you can do it this way, you know, and watch the cows at the same time, you know. There's a few calves out there, actually, it's quite cute. Um, the, um, I think um, that, um, well, tankers and LNG are fossil fuel, carrying fossil fuels. And I think you have to put your thinking hat on and decide what happens there about uh, whether we will really give up fossil fuels. But I think the gist of this, um, uh, the, 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 this talk is that we're going to work very hard to keep on using fossil fuels, but to use to find ways to use less to sequester carbon to do that sort of thing. So I think, you know, you need to treat tankers and LNG fairly carefully as cargoes. Dry bulk, um, well, it's a big business. I, the Iron ore business has expanded unbelievably in the last 20 years. And we just, for years and years and years, it was 300 million tons. And that was, or 350 million tons was what you put in your forecast every year. And then suddenly it trebles. Um, I reckon there's enough iron ore around for the time being, though if you said prove it, I'm not sure that I could. It's just that, you know, China has expanded year after year. And, um, uh, we are in an era where we are engineering the use of materials more carefully. The big construction era perhaps is bubble is over. I don't know. So the minor box, you know, is, is always there. Um, and I think probably the, the, the length of haul hasn't changed as much in the minor box. So um, I know this is not a very good answer, but I think that um, I would tend to look at small ships, not big ships. And I would be a bit cautious about anything to do with fossil fuels. And um, I would um, focus as hard on the performance of the ships as what they carry, you know. Uh, but thanks, a great question. Um, oh, George Plattis. Hi there, George. Um, uh, would autonomous uh, AI and 3D printing disrupt 
world trade, localized production at end client level, and also shipbuilding and design. Um, you know, George, I was reading an interesting paper about um, um, Greek shipping at 1500 BC, and it seems to me a lot, it hasn't changed much. I mean, the ship that sank was carrying a load of fancy goods because the only things we know mostly from archaeological wrecks the the ships which which sank just off bodrum had a load of luxury goods they were bringing from alexandria to um, um athens i think and uh, you know um other another ship that sank was carrying scrap um it was in the bronze age and it was carrying scrap bronze actually from old axe heads and things i reckon trade finds its own level and i think that if you want my blanket answer to this i don't think trade will grow so much but i think the value added of trade and the value added we're going to try and add to our customers is going to increase i mean you know when i started in shipping if you had a country if you had a, a factory up in sunderland up in the north of england um, you put your cargo on a lorry and you took it down to Port Sunderland port and a cargo liner would pick that up and take it to a small port in Malaysia um, and you didn't have to worry about it none of this putting it on a truck and taking it down to Southampton that came with containerization and I think this business to business transport um, short sea uh, it, it, you know is going to lead to all sorts of trades to obscure places that we haven't thought of before and will stretch our um, ingenuity. I mean, you've only got to look at the way Uber has added value. I know that they get a lot of stick, but you know, how can you argue with the fact that instead of ringing for your local cab company to drive 10 miles to pick you up from a restaurant, um, Uber uh, tells in two minutes sends you the cab that's outside. This is pure information technology. It saves fuel, it saves energy, it adds value, and um, I'm not sure Uber drivers make all that much money, actually, so I'm going to stop there. But, um, you know, we're in the business to transport goods, and I think there's a great business up there for the next generation. I would love to be, wish I had 50 years again, you know. Um, so thanks, George, great question. Um, uh, Greg Miller, how do you think the coronavirus-driven recession, if, for example, slumps in... in for example, the slump scenario could impact on the willingness of countries con to continue backing the 250 greenhouse gas goal goals. What happens in terms of capacity trends if they don't? Well, um, what a good question. Um, all of these scenarios come back to behavioral stuff. You know, we haven't heard much about Little Gritter lately. Um, I I think that it is very difficult for societies to stick long-term with theoretical goals. And climate change is not in our minds so much at the moment. I haven't heard the word climate change. I hear, I mean, I can guarantee if I wake up in the morning and switch on the radio, I'll hear a coronavirus six times in the first two minutes, you know, but I don't hear climate change. I suppose, if climate change is happening, we will have some catastrophes, which I think it probably is, and that will sharpen our attention. Um, and I think 
I don't think it really matters too much to my interpretation. This is a white paper. I don't think it really matters climate change, whether you buy into the technology waves that I'm talking about or not, because I think that the world of shipping that comes out of the vision of those technology waves will be far, far better able to deal with climate change and uh, many other social and behavioral problems than the industry of today is. Our problem today is that we don't really have much flexibility. We aren't very smart, smart shipping. We, we really, we buy big steel boxes and we fix them and we leave them to go from one port to another and then we fix them again. And I think we can do much, much more than that. And the next generation will, you know, and this generation, you know, hopefully you're never too old to do it. So I think on that particular one, Greg, um, I, I think we have to um, look at these scenarios as a framework for going forwards and you decide what's the priority. And I don't think that necessarily some of the things in these scenarios do depend crucially on climate change. They depend on changing our business philosophy to take advantage of something that is suddenly there, some technology that's suddenly there, just as it was in 1860, you know, suddenly all that steam technology was mature. Alfred Holt could pull it all together. Suddenly today, someone who knows what they're up to can suddenly do something much, much better. It's just that someone's got to do it, you know, it doesn't do itself. Um, so thanks for that question. Um, Rolf Stiefel, um, which companies would integrate all these systems for wave two or three technology? Um, well, this is the, this, this raises, I hate to keep saying it, but these are great questions. Um, th these are questions about company philosophy and capability, and it raises the question of newcomer or old shipping company. I mean, in fact, what you find if you look at the Victorian steam era, that many of the companies which came to dominate the industry 40 years later were founded during this period of technological innovation, starting with Alfred Holt, who set up um, Ocean Steamship uh, and became Blue Funnel. And it was the Maersk of its day in the 60s. Blue Funnel was the Maersk of its day, you know, it was the dominant. And P&O, same thing, Cunard, these were all became big companies. So I, my inclination says that probably um, the, um, the companies that will do the job will, may well be new entrants. I don't know. It's a big step for existing companies. I have tried working with a few and it's very, I mean, you just, if you've got a, a fleet of 50 or 100 ships um, with today's technology, it's a very steep hill to climb to get the technology to run out sort of this digital technology around these ships that are all over the world. It's very, very difficult. And um, so I think maybe, you know, Alfred Holt basically started from, from nothing and built it up and maybe that's the way, but then it's hard to get the funding for startups nowadays and ships are in a way, you know, the capital base was 
in some strange ways more available in those days uh, than it is today. It sounds strange, but it's true. People would take bigger risks, you know. Um, uh, let's see, Santosh Patil. Uh, uh, um, given the financial hit that shipping companies will take due to the coronavirus disruption, will this slow down the process of digitalization? Um, I am not necessarily convinced. I, I think um, the philosophy that was in my mind as I was writing this paper was that the virus is going to shake us up in all sorts of ways and it's going to make us appreciate that things that we thought were impossible were actually not that difficult. I mean, you know, until um, a month ago, uh, Capital Link was running, I've been to them, big, big meetings, and we all gathered together. And now Capital Link is doing virtual meetings, and it's only, um, you know, thanks to the technological wonderful wonders of uh, Annie and Nicholas, we're able to share these things. And I, so I, I think that um, in the end, it will be a stimulus that the virus is going to make us look at our basic business model again and it'll give young guys a chance to get going and hopefully the, the capital will be there to take a chance because people will be looking for businesses that are actually able to embrace this sort of technology. Um, that's that one, Stavros Dimitros, which would be it be, in your opinion, the role of oil and gas majors with respect to energy transformation, take the lead or try to slow down the evolution of the transformation? Um, well, I was, um, uh, uh, Nicholas was threatening me of, of a panel with Graham Henderson from Shell um, just about a month ago. And um, I wasn't, I, 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 I think the, Oil majors are in a very difficult position. I mean, they're big companies, they have great assets. The world is still hooked on oil. I mean, you couldn't manage without them tomorrow. Um, they have a history of changing, although basically it is very difficult. Um, you know, I think one of the lessons of industrial di diversification is that in the long run, people tend to stick to their knitting, you know what I mean? And the um, oil majors have tried to diversify from time to time, but it's amazing that the chemical companies are chemical companies still, and the oil companies are still oil companies. They tried coal and lots of other things. Um, so whether they will, but of course they do do gas, and it does seem to me that if we can find a way to, to produce um, low carbon hydrogen by, from uh, methane by sequestering gas and that sort of thing, they have um, lots of technology on that area and they're working very hard on the gas side. So maybe they can actually make that one work and that buys another chunk of time and then we see what happens because ultimately the electric ships as far as I can see, or for that matter, going back to the earlier question, um, the um, uh, internal combustion and are going to burn some sort of derivative 
or uh, some sort of carrier, if you like, of hydrocarbon fuels. So you have to find a way of sequestering that at a reasonable cost. And I think the thing I haven't mentioned any time in this whole presentation is the cost of these, this new technology it is not going to be cheap. I mean, you know, they're already talking about liquid hydrogen being three times the cost. Um, but then by the time you've built the, uh, the ship, the conversion is lower. Um, the, I, I mean, the electric ship does sound slightly expensive, though maybe it won't be once it's mass produced. Um, so I think there's some questions there. I, I'd say the jury's, I'm sorry to say this Stavros, but I would say the jury's out on that one. And companies with those sort of resources and management structures, I'd be surprised if they didn't give it a good run for their money, frankly. Um, uh, uh, now, here's a question from Punit Oza. Hi, Doc Sofford. Awesome. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, with nearly the whole world in lockdown, um, demand has more or less evaporated in the short term, but even in the medium term, the consumers will be reluctant to spend much money and conserve cash. Will this not have a huge knock-on impact on shipping, especially container shipping, which may last for over the whole 2020? Um, thanks, Punit. Well, um, I think I'm going to, I'm, my resolution is I'm going to do my bit by going out and buying an enormous um, uh, Range Rover, top of the range Range Rover and get some money into circulation again. Because at the moment, my um, stuck out in the barn, I have a 50-year-old Land Rover, which is a bit past its sell-by date. And it only does about 10 miles to the gallon as well. You know. um, I, I think um, that we're back to the behavioral issue. And I guess the behavioral thing is the, um, the, the, the heart of all these scenarios. Um, you have to be very careful with the way people behave. I mean, you can feel the temperature of the lockdown changing at the moment. Certainly in this country, people... It's a bit like end of term, you know, people or end of the holidays. People, for the first three weeks, it was a fantastic novelty. Now they're getting a bit nervous about what happens next. And um, it's a very good question about whether they're going to spend their money. I mean, the governments have poured money into these furlough schemes. I mean, the British government's put £40 billion into paying the wages of four million, I think it's four, those are the numbers, four million uh, furloughed workers who've been laid off in the hope that they will go straight back to work, get back to work, and they'll have money in the bank and they'll you know, start to go out to restaurants, take foreign holidays, go on a cruise, do all the things, buy a big car, do all the things they've done before. Will they do it or will they be very nervous and will they be constantly worried about catching the virus if they go out? And um, this, so I, I think that um, we have to watch that one very carefully and governments are going to have to dream up good ways to, uh, to, for people to spend their money which, um, and, and good ways to handle uh, that, this sort of consumption. And I, I, um, I need to think about it, I, but I, it's, it's the right question. I don't think I can quite 
answer it. Um, and I think these, the answers to these sort of questions can be very risky, but don't forget it. I think that's, a good, that's very true. Um, oh, here's another question from an old friend, Jamie Freeland. Um, uh, hi, Martin. Um, without wishing to divert you into the murky waters of geopolitics, do you think we will see a version of the 19th century line of services today servicing modern day empires? Wow. For instance, China and its increasingly captive iron ore trade with Brazil. Um, I, I, uh, it's interesting that you come up with Brazil at the end because I think the the sense, there is a very strong sense that China by 2049 would like to see um, the, 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 the tributary system operating again in Asia. Um, that's not to say that they want an empire like the old British empire. Uh, what they just want is a system where everybody accepts that uh, China's the big dog, not America. And um, I, that is, you know, it's, it's easy to see that as part of uh, the future trade mechanism. And in some ways, I think, looking forward, North America and Europe belong together more easily in a way. And the, great, the two great blocks of the future, in a way, are the North Atlantic and Asia, which both of which have very big critical mass. Um, just on this, I mean, there's a, a, one of the, my favorite um, uh, historians, Fernand Bradell. Um, he um, he had this view. He said there are world, there is the world economy, and there are, there is a world economy, and a world economy is uh, an economist, a group of economies which are big enough to be self-supporting. They're big enough to work as an integral whole. And we, after the Second World War, we went to the world economy where we regarded the whole world as being a single economic unit. But 50 years growth later, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that Asia is a, absolutely a critical mass area. Um, North Atlantic is a critical mass area. Africa, the Indian Ocean, Middle East, we'll find that these areas are all able to integrate in a way. And I don't think it means you stop um, linking them together because, you know, Brodell just said they have barriers between them. And in a sense, a month on a container ship is a sort of barrier. Um, it's not a massive one, but it's a, it's a sort of barrier. And so I think, you know, we might end up uh, with... Um, a geopolitical system which sort of is a blend of globalization and um, regional regional clusters. I think that's that's the way I'd go on that one. Not quite sure how Brazil fits into that because you would have thought climate change wise China ought to get its iron ore from Australia as far as I know it's only a third of the distance but um, uh, that's that's an, a, not the question you asked. <laughs> um, there's a question here from Eric um, Osterby. Uh, hi, Eric. Do you see shipbuilding coming back to Europe and the USA, or will it still be dominated by China, Japan, and Korea? What a nightmare. 
<laughs> I, I mean, I spent the 1980s um, trying to struggle to get British shipbuilding through that recession. And um, we struggled with the technology, which is very difficult. For, we had quite small yards. Uh, we struggled with the market. You know, we didn't have a big, a very strong European affiliation anymore. And the Greeks and uh, Norwegians, quite rightly, were going to Asia, where they got a better ship cheaper. Um, I think that, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, Mr. Mayor has proved that um, uh, crews can work and uh, Fincantieri so, and, and Chantier. So I think um, with the new, what I think, the, I think the answer to this question is as follows, that the new technology opens a new door for shipbuilders. And the question to debate is, is being a big and successful shipbuilder with the current system, which is basic, based on whole block construction, zone outfitting, minimization of man hours, is that system at the right platform to move to the sort of shipbuilding system that you will need in order to build the sort of ship I've been describing, the electric ship of the future? Um, and um, I mean, in cars, Toyota managed to build electric cars on a, a, a batch basis on a production line. And so I would say there's quite a high chance that Asia for the big ships will manage to make the transition. Um, but for the, um, uh, for the smaller ships, and the specialized vessels, it's a very different story. You don't have the big production lines. So I think that um, maybe the door that opens for the digital technology uh, will be open for the USA and Europe if they can come up with the, um, the capital and the sort of business drive to do it. Uh, that would be my current thought on that one. Um, I don't know how we're doing for time, whether you guys are all exhausted. Um, <laughs> um, they, um, I, I've got a, oh, I suppose we ought to be thinking, I, I, I fear that everybody must be having their, their dinner, their lunch by now. <laughs> um, I've got, got a question. Um, um, Annie, if you give me a, a clue, if you think we're running too long. Um, Miguel, um, a question here. Hi, Professor, could you make some comments regarding the current storage problem in the oil side and your forecast on when this is going to be solved? Are we already at the bottom of the market? What conditions are likely to occur in order for the oil price to pick up? Um, well, I mean, I read in Tradewinds the other day that Richard Fulford Smith doesn't know when it's going to end. So, I mean, how am I supposed to know? Um, it, um, it seems to me, I mean, that what seems to be happening, and I have to preface my remarks with the fact is I've been concentrating on this paper for the last couple of weeks and I haven't um, been digging too much into this, but what seems to me to be going on is very well known. I mean, it's the reason that, the reason that West uh, Texas oil had always did have a differential price from say Brent is that it, there is an issue getting it to market and it's all um, 
it's all marketed through the hub in Oklahoma. And um, I don't know whether the hub in Oklahoma actually ran out of the Cushing hub, hub actually ran out of storage space or whether the storage space just got bought up by people who decided that they were going to use it um, to squeeze, um, maximize the revenue they could squeeze out of um, producers who um, have, um, uh, who, who really were faced with the option of either closing down totally or finding, paying through the nose for some storage. Um, clearly, the situation, I would have thought the situation has to be fairly temporary because the cost is very great and um, the people in the, the Midwest um, will you know, be taking steps to reduce production once they get a handle on what the demand for oil is going to be. So I, I'd say I would have expected shakedown in a month or two would be the normal thing you would expect to happen. And at that point, I guess you would expect the oil price to go up again because the, the, everybody, I mean, they can't survive as they are. So there's an enormous economic incentive on everybody to get the oil price up again. And, um, uh, you know, that goes for the traders who are holding oil and for the producers who are hemorrhaging cash on the oil that they're producing and storing at this enormous uh, cost at the moment. So I, I mean, without any knowledge, I'd be, I'd, I would have thought it will shake down in the next month or two. The price will then start to go up again. <clears throat> And um, once, uh, and the minute the price goes up again, then I guess the traders are going to, um, uh, the, the traders can actually find a market for their cargo at a reasonable price, then the, the tankers will wind down. But that's quite a complex dynamic, and I wouldn't claim, uh, I wish I had a crystal ball on that. I'm sure there are people who follow it day by day. Um, I mean, maybe, um, uh, the guys in Clarkson Research are following it day by day with the brokers, but I'm not close enough to, to, or clever enough to do that one. Um, uh, I'd be cautious. Um, Kimon Carajorgio, um, how do you see the shipping finance landscape changing in this new era of carbon um, with the Posidonia principles, etc.? It's, well, the problem really is that um, financing that you're talking about, um, Kimon, is, um, it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's a brokerage. I mean, basically, there's a great big bubble of money kicking around, which um, in the North Atlantic, particularly, all the baby boomers cash. Uh, and um, there's... Um, you know, there's nowhere to put it and it keeps popping up in different places. My, um, uh, and really what we've seen in ship finance over the last 10 years is a sort of 10 or 15 years is a retreat away from this rather nice stable system we had where the uh, American money center banks and the European banks were um, basically retailing um, Eurobond finance to the ship markets so you could go and borrow 
quite easily as a, as a margin, a small margin over LIBOR. And that has slowed, that has now more or less disappeared. Uh, well, I mean, they say they're in the market, but my sense is it isn't really there at all anymore. Um, and um, the uh, Chinese leasing companies um, have, you know, been through the mangle and have learned a great deal about credit risk. Um, and I get the sense there's a great, well, there's some interesting things that have surprised me recently. I mean, one is, you know, um, investment banks going into directorship ownership and actually going in not on a speculative basis where they invest with a ship owner, but saying, I think we can do this better than ship owners can. And um, I mean, you know, these are smart guys, maybe they can. Um, another, well, we shall see, but, uh, I, I, and then there seems to be a lot of interest in the boutique sort of operations who can put together finance on a packaged basis um, from the many sources of money out there. I mean, there's no, there is a big pool of money. It's just a matter of how you, you know, how you get your finger in the, in the pot, you get, you get your spoon in the honey pot, you know. Um, so I, I think probably flexibility is, is going to be what, what we're looking for. And um, you just have to, uh, you know, sort of um, watch the way the wind's blowing, which is something the Greeks are very good at doing, I have to say. Um, uh, Themistocles, uh, I did not pronounce that very well, um, is shipbuilding industry marching towards standardization in the same ways airplanes are being manufactured? Very, very interesting question. I'll say it again. You guys have got all the right questions. I looked into this very carefully when I, I mean, I've been on the smart shipping for about seven years now and I, when I started looking at the canvas tiles type, um, replacing wires with messaging, I had a good look at the car industry and who solved this problem uh, very well and everybody did the right thing at the right time. And then I looked at the plane industry and I got the impression that the plane industry, if you take the simple philosophy, no wires, um, just um, messages, they haven't really done that. Um, they've done it a bit, but my impression is they have two problems. One is um, a space sort of problem that, um, uh, or maybe it was the, you know, the whole complexity of the plane. Um, it was too big a, a, a problem to grasp. And um, the, the, the second, one was that they, um, they were very much locked into a production system, which is not that dissimilar to the shipbuilding one. I mean, in fact, arguably the shipbuilders, IHI, who invented the zone outfitting block um, material control system, um, that's <clears throat> it, used by all shipbuilders today, um, that was actually developed in Japan on information that they got from Boeing on aircraft construction. So I, um, and, and I think that the um, aircraft, I think, got stuck on the, the problems of doing that on there because they're not 
totally mass produced to be quite the mass production was a bit of a bucket was a bit of a, a straitjacket i suspect i i mean i'm not saying that with any authority because it's something that just occurred to me at the moment um for ship builders um the ships are very big and complex but i think that actually then they're built in quite small quantities i mean we do about 2000 ships a year compared with 100 million cars and i forget how many um planes it's not a lot of planes a few thousand um but i think that the the great thing for ships is that you can that what you do under the technology i'm looking at is that say you've got navigation you want to totally integrate your navigation technology then somebody like sperry rand works hard comes up with a system that does that it's their integrated system but it has a an electronic control system that plugs into a standard um backbone system on the ship operated by canvas style protocols and that means that it they have no problem on rolling out upgrades they can standardize their system um it can be installed by their engineers on the ship so i think that the and there's few enough ships um involved in production to actually make that work i believe and so you but you to do that you need the equipment industry and the shipyards and the owners to line up at once because at the moment what happens is you know your greek owner says oh i want my pumps from here and my um uh oil pump from there and my um uh cranes from somewhere else and the shipyard says oh yes fine no problem as long as the supplier sends the pump with the inlet and outlet in the right place they don't care about its spec or its telematics or anything like that so i think that we we need to get the um the equipment manufacturers and the shipbuilders and the owners singing from the same hymn sheet and that is quite a, a challenging task but i would say not as difficult as the aircraft industry um right um uh i i you know uh, <laughs> i um any offered me the chance to uh, to ask you guys some um, uh, questions that you had to press a button and we would see the result of the the questionnaire and it did occur to me last night that i i couldn't think of any good questions but one was um the question have you had enough <laughs> um i would love to be able to ask you the question have you had enough and when you when the answer was 99% yes i would know i can go and have a cup of tea you know <laughs> um but um i i um i'll do a few more and then we can see where we've because i sort of feel i'm doing all the talking here which is um i mean that's fine you know we're all economists enough to hear their own voices but um i um uh, you know it's a bit tough for you guys listening uh, but hopefully you're all uh, i bet you you're all sitting down having um since you're mostly on lockdown having a a, a swift gin and tonic before a, a three course lunch right <laughs> um or at least those in the states in europe of course it's going to be a gin and tonic before dinner um 
Okay, uh, Michaelis uh, Tolotis, as per one of your last slides, shall we presume that we'll need some more technology specialists in shipping companies? Yes, absol absolutely. I would love to see um, universities doing a master's, maybe a, an accelerated master's in marine engineering and digital technology or naval architecture and computer systems, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, I've talked to some of the um, universities like Newcastle where I'm a visiting professor about exactly this sort of thing. I think that would absolutely be great. We're going to need people who know the answers. And I would love to see people, you know, the, um, you know, people go on mid-career management courses uh, at Harvard. I would love to say places like Harvard or MIT doing these mid-career courses so you could go in and get a refresher on digital technology and marine, marine engineering. Because, you know, when I started work, nearly every Greek that you met had, had either, they'd all done naval architecture at Newcastle, marine engineering at South Shields, um, some marine course up at Strathclyde. Um, everybody, they knew about how ships worked. And then, of course, we started the financial, tr the shipping trade and finance at CAS. And nowadays, most of the principals do finance because the big thing is raising money. But I think going forward, if you take my Alfred Holt sort of uh, arguments, then we need people who, who can take the bull by the horns and start to knock the shape into shape, the whole thing into shape. And I've, I've been involved in starting enough businesses to know that you have to, you have to be a bit, somebody has to be prepared to stick their neck out and say, we're going to do that. I know you don't really like it and it's a pain in the neck and it, that didn't quite work. Someone's going to go in and say, do that and look over their shoulder and say, no, not like that, like that and make it work. And I think that we're going to need specialists to work with the guys who do it, the guys who are going to manage the whole thing are going to need people who can actually put their thoughts and ideas and ambitions into practice. And it's hard to find people like that nowadays, I can tell you. Um, uh, raise, uh, uh, one from Raison Chandra Saha. Do you feel ship recycling be a problem as we depend on it for getting raw steel? Um, well, um, there are indeed um, lots of mini mills and people using raw steel. I, I don't know how the how that part of the industry is going to develop. It's the um, the Hong Kong Convention on Demolition is far from, as I understand it, is far from ratified. And write it, tell me if it if it is. But as far but the last I heard, it, it was not ratified. Um, it's um, it's a very d difficult and dangerous business, recycling ships. I mean, I once looked at it when I was in shipbuilding. We looked at converting a shipyard into recycling yard. Um, you can do it, but it costs a fortune. You know, if you start doing it with all the best standards, health and safety, it's quite a big job. And of course, also, we didn't have a market for the uh, secondary market for the equipment you take off the ship. Whereas 
in India and uh, the other places which are recycling ships, there's a good market. It's good cash. It makes a difference. So um, I, I mean, maybe we should be starting thinking much more about building ships which can be um, not just recycled, but upgraded, given my comments earlier about the fact that the new generation ships you built may well have to be upgraded several times, you know, during their working life. So it might make a lot of sense to build those ships in a much more modular way, especially the engine room and the equipment spaces. And I have to say that my, my the suggested system of replacing wires with messages would make that whole process much more elegant, much neater. You know, the chance to drop something in and plug in the ECU, fantastic. And you could, you know, I think you, you maybe there is a way forward, but this is, you know, this is visionary thinking. It's not with us now. Uh, the answer is, I think you probably be going to get um, raw steel from scrap yards for a while to come yet. <laughs> um, David Lloyd, we've recently seen a supply glut of LNG carriers on the market with demand levels very low due to mild winter and onset of COVID-19. Um, could COVID-19 slow down the demand for LNG as a fuel source in the future, making the fuel obsolete sooner rather than later? Well, we're back to the behavioral issues. Um, at the moment, um, the UK depends on um, uh, LNG for its, um, its supplies of gas. We don't get them from the North Sea anymore. Uh, it's very important, but it is um, market sensitive. And um, I would have thought that um, LNG it is behaving a bit like oil. It's still a small number of ships compared with, but you know, at one time, um, oil was a, um, a small, the tanker market was a small market too. And, um, you know, it was the small numbers of ships was a problem. I remember going to um, a lecture by a, a, a name from the past, Erling Ness, um, who was a great Norwegian ship owner. I went to a lecture many years ago when he was about 90 and he talked about how he, he bought this 10,000, he ordered a 10,000 ton products tanker in 1929. And um, he, uh, everyone said, you'll never trade it, it's far too big, you're a fool to order this ship. But he went ahead and ordered it anyway. And he said, well, you know, I ordered this ship and I tramped it around the Mediterranean all year and I couldn't charter it. It was a complete disaster. So when markets are small, it's, it's risky. I. I have to say, I think there's enough problems getting low carbon, zero emission fuels, uh, that LNG has to be a future. And it's, the, you know, there is a lot of LNG that is not close to the markets and ships are still a very good way of getting it there. And so I think that this will shake down as the market um, matures and develops, but it's a small market still. And so you've got to expect these swings. It's just, well, you're getting the same swings in the tanker market. And the tanker market today is a wonderful example of how, you know, you don't make money every day, but sometimes it just rolls in. And that's, um, that's the name of the game, you know, make hay while the sun shines, as they say in the farms. 
Um, uh, thanks for that question. Um, uh, Klaus Johansson, despite uh, uh, the topic of the day, do you have any view on the cruise industry going forwards? Um, well, I wish I knew. Um, I, um, it's hard to believe that I was on a panel with just um, middle of February with Tom Strang, who's the chief of operations at Carnival. And he was saying during the panel, um, we, we had um, the British new sh shipping minister there, and he was saying how, um, you know, um, crews, um, you know, it was a, a business working to full capacity, operating, for, uh, for making good profits. And I did, as an aside, whisper under my breath to him, you know, you better watch out because things had started to move a bit. And I, I think he knew that very well. Um, the, 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 the cruise lines are, the big ships are designed to operate, I believe, at 95% um, uh, occupancy. Um, they have massively sophisticated uh, logistics systems. They are organized in a way that the rest of the shipping industry could hardly even begin to contemplate. It's an amazing thing. I, in fact, he, Tom told me that uh, Carla, uh, Carnival crews serve three million meals a day. Can you believe catering for three million people a day on different ships around the world? I think that their challenge is they're going to have to convince the world that you're safer on a cruise ship than you are going to some hotel because you've got to go so people may be afraid of oh hello um i seem to have lost you Ah, am I back again? I briefly, um, yeah, my computer is rebelling about something. <laughs> it's, uh, yes, it sent me, actually the computer sent me a message saying, you're talking too much stuff, it better shut up soon. Um, <laughs> um, you're all too polite. Um, anyway, on, on the, um, the cruise thing, the one thing in my mind is that you've got to go for holiday somewhere and the um, and I'm not sure that I wouldn't rather go on a cruise ship in the control of these very sophisticated organizations who have a lot to lose than go to some small hotel that, or a mid-sized hotel somewhere. Um, so I, I think, um, and it could very much, um, you know, if, if you can find a way of cruising where you cut out some of the trans travel, that's even better. So I, I think cruise... Um, it's a great industry. I'm beginning to convince myself that, that it's going to go in their favour, um, but perhaps perhaps I'm wrong. Um, uh, Molina uh, Vassiliari, Vassiliari um, what is, in your opinion, about autonomous ships? Um, will this change come soon? Um, I, I went around the, the conference circuit with Oscar Lavander from Rolls-Royce. Um, I am not keen on, on um, autonomous ships. And Oscar had a wonderful 
presentations, you know, he'd, uh, you know, I'd do my talk about smart shipping, which as you've seen is all rather serious stuff about hard work and technology. And Oscar would put up his video of Ronnie, Ronnie the robot on this futuristic bridge of a ship, um, you know, with glass everywhere. And um, everyone would say, oh, ah, you know, and I'd be dead in the water, basically. Um, I, I think that I'll tell you, my answer on autonomous ships is this. It's you're choosing to start at the hardest end of the market. I mean, an autonomous ship has to make all these systems that I was talking about work totally autonomously. It's a massive job. And human minds are still very flexible and careful. And we still, programmers are still pretty useless at doing reliable auto algorithms. Um, so I think that we have to learn to walk before we can run. And I think the process of my three waves of technical development, during that process, we are going to learn how to run ships with systems that have messages, not cables. And to do that in a way which deals with day-to-day -day problems, whilst giving managers who still have to manage the business the information that they need and the help that they need to do the job because computers are on really good ground there. And uh, I mean, you don't need to run the ship completely to make, to, to stop accidents happening. I mean, there's a million ways to do that. A wonderful example, there was a, a ship that ran into the Brooklyn Bridge a couple of years ago and um, it's, I, I, I was curious, I mean, how can a ship possibly run into the Brooklyn Bridge? And it turned out to be an air draft issue. That, and of course, there's a very big tidal range in the Hudson. And the master had just made a slight mistake he, about the tidal level and, yeah, and um, he touched the bridge with the, the top of the ship, touched the bridge. A computer would not have allowed that to happen. It would have been screaming blue murder at him long before he got anywhere near the bridge. So I think and those are the sorts of things that you can do quickly, easily. Let's do them, you know, let's, let's not mess about. Uh, but of course, you know, autonomous ships are fun. You can go and buy one at a toy shop, you know, with a remote control that you and, and play with it. If you, if you really must c control the ship, there's plenty of ch chances to do that. Um, uh, so thanks, Melina. Nigel Thomas, um, isn't one of the biggest problems still, how do we stop shipyards distorting the market by offering ships too cheaply? <laughs> um, they're not as cheap as they have been, I have to say. Um, it, uh, when I left shipbuilding, we couldn't get enough for the ship to pay for the materials, never mind the labor. Um, I think the shipyards do the best they can, but the trouble is, that um, you guys won't tell them how many ships um, in, will be needed in future reliably enough. They've got to employ thousands of people. And it's a nightmare. You know, one day you wanted lots of ships and the next day you don't want any. And then you want bulk carriers, then you want container ships. And the poor old shipyards have to sort all this out. Um, it's a problem of all cyclical capital intensive industries. The shipyards produce just a tiny percentage of the fleet every year. So their markets are massively leveraged. I think to answer this question, I would love to see 
governments and ship owners using if there is a, a slump in shipbuilding going ahead i would love to see shipyards governments um, financial institutions using this opportunity to sponsor good shipbuilder shipyard shipping companies to order ships which incorporate the new technology we've just seen um, the norwegian company um, order that ordered the autonomous ship in Italy, you know, <clears throat> they put their money where their mouth was, it, it, you know, it may never run autonomously, but they're going to, at least you've got a prototype. I'd love to see projects like, do you know, I've forgotten the name of the company. I know it very well. Uh, anyway, um, but you all know who I mean, yeah, the, um, up on the West Coast, the chemical company. Um, I'd, I think we need to be getting ships like that on the into the order book and pushing the shipyards and the equipment manufacturers to work together to come up with the systems that replace wires with messages and which give information to the teams of workers across the shipping companies so that they can really manage the, the move towards climate change properly. So I think that's that's what we should be seeing and we and if uh, so we should make a virtue out of a necessity. You won't stop the cycles in shipbuilding. It's been there for hundreds of years, much more than, you know. Um, Anthony Foster, how would a significant fuel tax change the medium term views? Um, I mean, I, 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 as you may know, I had this on my one of my slides. I'd, I'd like to see 150 percent tax on um, bunkers because I, the reason I like a tax is we tax on petrol. I chose 150% because that's about the tax on petrol in this country. It had put the, well, it would have put the price of bunkers up to about $1,200 a, a ton when I wrote that slide. Of course it doesn't today, but I don't suppose that'll last. Um, I think the great thing is you put the price up, people, it, it allows shipping companies and shipbuilders and equipment manufacturers to respond accordingly. They know that people are gonna be prepared to pay to save, uh, save energy because energy is very expensive. And it, the minute you do that, you're actually bringing the whole industry working towards the goal of using less fuel and less fuel means less carbon. Uh, why don't we do it? Well, IMO can't get a, a majority to, um, to do it. And um, one of the big problems is if you did that, the amount you would raise billions of dollars of tax revenue and the argument over who gets the tax revenue would make Brexit look like a wolf in the park, basically, you know. Um, so there is a big problem over implementing this, but it would be great if you could do it, Anthony. I think it's, uh, I, I personally, I'm an economist. I believe the market mechanism is still the best show in town, you know. Um, per Bjorn Hansen, ha, hi. <laughs> Uh, uh, nice to, to hear from you. The total amount of goods transported seems to be to continue rising every year. Is this increase parallel to the increase in the world's population or is there any other factor? Um, well, the pop, number one, the population, I don't think is. It, I, I believe the latest demographic 
forecasts are that the population is not increasing so much uh, as, as it was. It never did increase as fast as, as seaborne trade. And um, I, I, I mean, basically, um, it took the world, it took the shipping industry 8,000 years to get from no trade to 20 million tons in 1820. Um, it's taken us then about 150 years to get from 20 million tons to um, 12 billion tons. And uh, that is almost entirely due to fossil fuels. And I think basically, and the, you've got to remember, fossil fuels have been cheap as chips. You know, I mean, especially the diesel oil. You know, dollar a barrel for most of the last 50 uh, years, um, you know, you could buy crude oil for a dollar a barrel. And it does, you know, well, the, the, the example I use on this, which some of you may have heard, is that if you take the Emma Maersk, um, if you were to replace the engine of the Emma Maersk, which is about 110,000 horsepower, um, that's going at full speed, obviously, with people, you would need to power the Emma Maersk, three million people, and they would eat nine billion calories a day, and they need a town the size of Athens to sleep in. Um, and so not only is um, oil incredibly powerful, I mean, all of that is done by two or 300 tons a day of oil, which number one is packed with energy, number two costs almost nothing um, at the moment, uh, even still, and number three, you can move it around, uh, it takes up no, sh no space in the ship. You don't have to shovel it like coal. It's a fantastic energy. And what we've suddenly been told is that we've got to stop doing that, that we can't use oil. And there is no, at the moment, um, Peter, there is no other show in town. And the ones we're talking about are not very, you know, are nothing like fossil fuels. So I think somehow, we're going to make some compromises. And I don't think they're very difficult compromises. We're paid to be smart. You know, smart shipping is about smart, being smart. And that's not about technology. It's about giving management the, chart, the, the framework to manage the industry better and to achieve that more value added, less carbon emissions, less fuel. So I, I don't think um, that, I think that, trade probably will grow relatively more slowly, perhaps much more slowly than population in the future. Um, oh, here's another one from another old friend, Martin Crawford Brunt. Do you think the existing technology, we're getting down to the, to the, to the hardcore now, Martin. <laughs> Demand um, destruction through COVID in the near term is evident. Uh, which segments of deep sea shipping will be resilient to the downturn, in my opinion? Um, well, I suppose it ought to be hospital ships, really. <laughs> um, uh, I, um, well, I would expect um, the container business um, to do okay. I mean, although I don't really, I've never really been a big fan of the very big ships, but I think moving manufacturers around the place, we're locked into a logistics system and a food distribution system, we need that. So I think that um, the containers 
ought to be pretty resilient um, because um, the, 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 you know, they're into the sort of core business. Uh, the oil demand, um, I think, is very vulnerable. I mean, we've at the moment there's almost no planes flying, and there's nobody driving their cars. And I think this behavioural thing, it we there's a big chance that when people come out of lockdown, I had this discussion with someone in Korea who emailed me yesterday and asked and offered me a you know a very nice invitation to go to Korea in September. Um, you know, uh, all expenses paid. And I, I said to him, I'm not really sure whether I want to sit on a plane for 30 hours in September, you know. Um, and I, and so we agreed that, that you know, we'd, we'd keep in touch and we may end up doing it by video anyway. And I think, you know, I, I think there's a behavioural on the, on the tanker side. I think we need to look very hard at that. I won't go on about it. Um, the... Um, the dry bulk, I think I sort of semi-answered this to the extent that I answer anything previously. Um, the, um, uh, the basic minor bulks are very diversified and I think ought to be quite robust. Um, There's so many trades. Um, the iron ore, I don't know how much capacity China has really for um, a great boom, another, I mean, in, in 2010, they did this massive um, boom of um, investment boom to, uh, in um, much of which was construction activity, infrastructure and so forth. And that kick-started the shipping market after 2009. Um, from what I, I hear and read and see, even if China does do um, some sort of stimulatory fiscal investment thing, which I think they probably will, it may well be focusing much more on the digital side than on the infrastructure side. That's certainly what I'd do if I was them. I mean, you know, this story about digital is not just um, shipping, it's everywhere. And um, this is what better time to rebuild, you know, to rebuild digital technology, to build technical technological technology. And I'm, I would expect them to try and push this very hard in shipping. And indeed this paper that I've been giving you came out of a lecture in shipping and um, an interview with Diesel magazine in, in China. So I think um, that uh, the big heavy end of the bulk industry might find it a bit tricky too. That, that would be my view. Um, uh, Demetrius Mutarias, um, do you think existing technology is adequate to be able to build zero emission ships by 2035 to replace old 208 ships? Do you believe will be the prevailing technology? Okay, well, needless to say, I went through this as carefully as I could in my scenarios. Um, at the moment, um, the um, somebody mentioned one of the some I forget who it was mentioned um, internal combustion engines burning ammonia, which is a possibility. Um, but ammonia uh, has some nasty questions about it as well. And anyway, 
is not zero carbon. Um, on the fuel cells, uh, there is the, the, there have been fuel cells at sea. They're small, not very efficient, tiny little ships, tugs and things, offshore supply boats. Um, Ballard are, are testing a three megawatt um, um, fuel cell system with ABB. I mean, these fuel cells, it's a, it's, you know, the fuel cells have a very low voltage. You build up the voltage by having hundreds and hundreds of little fuel cells. And there's all sorts of fancy stuff. You can put them anywhere in the ship, but then you've got to think very much about the architecture of your ship. They claim they will have a marine capable three um, uh, megawatt system in um, uh, 2024, ready for trialing. Um, and talking to people who claim to know about this on the engineering side, it sounds like there's a fair chance that by the middle to end of the 2020s, we would be um, trialing these um, zero, uh, these fuel cell plants on a very extensive basis. And I think what would happen then is you would start to trial them in the areas where they're most effective. And it's interesting, there's an interesting parallel with steamships here actually, that steamships got started. The first steamship um, was a tiny little ferry in Philadelphia uh, in uh, 1792. The first real commercial ship was uh, built as a ferry in the Tyne in the 19, in the 1820s, in 1822, and it was uh, then converted to a tug. And in the next 50 years, most of the, the um, steamships were either tugs, ferries, um, uh, short sea packets, as they called them in those days, short sea ships. And they used those because the, um, the, the, the ships were too, too inefficient. They couldn't go very far without bunkering. And so they had to stay close to shore. And I think the same logic applies with the, um, uh, to go back to your question, with the first generation of all electric ships that we will probably end up trialing those in the short sea trades because it fits with the digital technology. Um, They're they're much more green, you know, it makes sense to to develop ships in areas where they're always close to the um, environmentally sensitive areas. Um, You're closer to for management and for doing repairs if things go wrong. So I'd say we start with short sea uh, in all all its different um, styles and then we slowly work out to the bigger ships um, which uh, you never know you might find some way of sequestering carbon on board the big ships. I'd say there's a better chance of finding a way of saving the internal combustion uh, um, engine on the very big ships than there is on the very little ships. So I'd say start small, build up. That's that, that's what I say. Um, who else have we got? Uh, Jagmeet. Um, with WTO forecasting reduction in trade from 30 to 32 percent. Um, are we looking at large-scale layups in the near future? Um, well, 
Uh, of course, don't forget that the WTO forecasts are in um, value, not in tonnes of cargo, and they can be significantly different. Um, it depends where the, um, the, the, the squeeze is on this. And I haven't been through the segmentation of these forecasts, but um, uh, I mean, basically, lockdown has meant that people have had have been not spending nearly as much as the lockdown has taken a great big bite out of consumer expenditure. And a lot of that is consumer goods, which is more at the, um, the, 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 the sort of um, uh, value added end of the market. You know, it takes um, you know, a lot of shipping containers um, are, um, you know, might be worth 30, 40,000, $50,000. Uh, just one container, perhaps a hundred thousand dollars. So um, I and so I would have said that I wouldn't expect sea trade to fall that amount that quickly. In my, I thought about this as well as I could, and I thought that I've got in my scenarios I have a four a five percent fall in seaborne trade this year. Um, which may be, I think, um, a little bit optimistic. The, the oil is the, is the big issue here, that oil has, you know, has taken a massive hit. Um, but strangely enough, that's, that, that's been very good for the tanker market. Um, in, in the period to, nine, to 2025, between now and 25, I had seaborne trade falling by 17%. And I based that on what happened in the 1980s when I actually saw it. And we had a very similar situation where we suddenly lost the oil trade. The oil trade fell from 1.6 billion tons in 1980 to um, uh, 900 million tons in 1983. Uh, but during that time, other trades grew, so you didn't get such a, it was diluted. So I, I felt that I had been reasonably, um, I'd been um, pessimistic, but not overly pessimistic in the scenario three. Um, and I would want to look very closely at the WTO forecast before I bought into anything like 32%. Um, and um, as far as laying up ships, I don't. Uh, people go slower nowadays. They don't. Um, they don't do layup. I think, you know, I I would have thought would be smart enough to slow down a bit more because uh, you know the the engines are now able to cope with that quite well. I think. Um, uh, Hungyun. You, um, hi there. What is the impact of climate change on the Arctic sea route if the emission pace slow down? To what extent such route will stimulate seaborne trade? Right. Well, um, I, I've looked at this quite a bit over the years, not very much recently, uh, just the last six months. But um, the, there seems to be a very real chance that the... Um, the North Pole ice will completely melt in the summer in the future. And 
uh, by in the next 10 or 15 years. I mean, when I was up in Tromso not long ago, um, there, there was, um, uh, this, this is very much on the cards, I think. Uh, so the, the ability to set, have a clear sail along the northern pass the north the passage between uh, northern Asia and um, northern Europe, uh, I think is quite good. Um, the big issue there is that it sails. It, it, there is a dispute over coastal waters there, and uh, because I think, as I understand it, Russia is claiming that their territorial waters extend. Um, over the whole area. And this is where I'm really not up to date on this highly political and very sensitive debate. But one big issue is whether the right of passage would be established. Um, but I, I would have thought um, that for those voyages um, that can benefit, which is basically anything, as I recall, anything from um, northern Japan rounds to um, and maybe uh, um, the, the sort of north northwest Europe can get some and, and maybe some northern east coast USA can get some benefit out of this. Um, it's not massive, but it's quite useful, and I would have expect that trade to develop. I think it may would make a lot of sense, and it does cut out quite a few ton miles, definitely. Um, that's the best I can manage at the moment. I'm now getting a bit brain dead on this one. <laughs> um, Harry Vodakas, uh, thank you. Um, in scenario three, have you considered the impact of lower demand for shipping transportation since a lot of oil will not be required? Um, mean by, uh, I mean by powering ships with um, FC will have an impact on bunkers. Uh, cars powered by hydrogen with dramatically lower demand for oil. How will these impact? Well, okay, um, uh, Harry, I can tell you exactly what I put into my model on that one. I had the um, oil trade, the um, total trade was only growing at 0.7%. And the um, hydrocarbons trade grew by minus, in my model, I think, grew by minus 1.4% per annum compound. So I did take a great big bite out of the fossil fuel trade. But of course, other trades grew so that you, you ended up pretty well where you began because other trades were filling the gap, either short sea or long sea. Um, so, so yes, I think the answer to that is that I do expect your trade on a, a cautious scenario where there's big climate change impacts. I would expect the oil trade to take a fairly big hit, uh, 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 definitely. Um, I don't know if that's an answer, but it's the best I can manage. Um, uh, Luke Ravenscroft, while it is clear that low carbon fuels are required to help the shipping industry achieve at least 50% reduction in CO2 by 2050, how quick must the shift away from diesel fuels be? Um, well, this goes much further than the IMO has been prepared to go. Of course, they've asked for a, a halfway house at 2030. 
Um, and I don't know quite what the EU is asking for here, but people are pushing it. There's a big debate over the EEDI because I think some people are saying, well, the EEDI is supposed to get the emissions of ships down, but it isn't really working that well. Um, and the whole thing is a bit tied up with the fact that there are still problems with monitoring um, emissions. But uh, on my... Um, uh, on my scenario, I um, phased out the production of diesel ships um, in about 2028 or 2030, as I remember. What I did was I, because I, my model, it's, it's an enormous model, and having gone through all the climate change stuff and everything else, I then started to look at... Um, what sort of ships were delivered by the shipyards. And I came up with a scenario for diesel deliveries. And my criteria in looking at that scenario was as follows. First of all, we don't really, you know, you can huff and, the, huff and puff, but uh, you can't blow the house down if you haven't got a decent amount of puff. And the trouble is we don't have a, a proper replacement at the moment. If, if the world is going to go on and trade is going to go on, we can't replace it at the moment. You can't have zero carbon with the, the present technology unless we just say, well, we're just not going to move much trade. But I didn't go down there. I didn't go there. Um, if with, with nothing to replace the diesel engine in the, the immediate future, I thought, well, um, I have to stop by 20, um, uh, 20 delivering diesel ships by the end of the 2020s because at that stage we've only got 20 years to depreciate the ship before the 2050 margin clicks in and I wouldn't be confident in, in investing in a ship which I couldn't guarantee would trade beyond 2050. I think that would be far too risky at the moment. I don't think it's quite risky up to then, but it's a risk perhaps worth taking um, because there isn't much choice. Uh, the, um, and then as you move um, beyond that, how fast you run down the diesel fleet depends on how quickly you develop the other forms of transport, i.e. gas powered and um, the electric power and what I was quite conservative about the electric power and I had that coming in towards the end of the decade and I really used the LNG to fill the gap in the middle because I just felt that made sense you know I mean the LNG only saves about 20% but I'm sure once the technicians get to work on it we can do better than that we can slow down and I think you know a D, an LNG ship going at op, does optimized to a relatively low speed, burning its own cargo, I think um, you know you might very well find that you can get a very nice outcome on that, especially for the deep sea stuff. You know that that might be the might be a very good solution for the big ships. Well, that's the best I could come up with anyway. Um, <laughs> um, Johan Maxinus, when when is the new edition of my book planned to be published? <laughs> um, 
Well, I wish I knew. I have worked really hard on this and been on it. I, re I always reckoned it took me 10 years to do an edition. And it was actually 10 years um, last year. I've been working on a new edition for about eight years, but I have three new chapters. I put in a new chapter. Uh, I decided, to, uh, I mean, in order to, to deal, I, I reckon I needed to put in a, a decent chapter about technology because I think you can't be a, a maritime economist nowadays without a, or a ship owner without understanding the technology. I did the same thing for finance at one time when in the first edition I did the same thing about regulations it's not my speciality but I put a chapter about that I put a new chapter about companies and um, and accounts and um, I've got a new chapter on microeconomics because I felt I didn't really nail that down properly so three new chapters which and they're all nearly ready to go so I've just got to go through the whole manuscript which is now um, uh, sadly, a hundred thousand pages. It's not a hundred thousand pages, a thousand pages. Um, and uh, but I'm assuming it'll be digital. Um, and I've just got to go through and update all the tables and the text. And I need to, you know, I really need to find some good help on that, really. Um, so the answer to your question is. I think next year is too soon. I'd, I, I'd be very, very happy if I could get it over the finishing line for the end of 2021. I'd be delighted. Um, uh, over my dead body, as they say. Constantin, <laughs> um, um, evidence mounts that the world is heading for a prolonged re recession from the devastating effects of coronavirus. Um, policymakers may be tempted to back away from renewable energy, focusing instead on rebuilding their economies. Will this impact? Um, okay, the first thing I would say, Constantine, is that I think we've got to be quite careful about assuming that not talking ourselves into a really deep recession. Um, you, things, I, I admit things don't look um pretty um the, things look pretty dodgy at the moment but you know things are fickle we could find that governments just get us all out of lockdown over you know we've only been in lockdown in the uk a month we get out over the summer everyone gets back to business uh, we just get used to the fact that you've got to be a bit careful when you go out and the whole thing is over by the end of the year. I mean, that was the view taken by UBS in their monthly review that I read about. They published that about the 20th of February. And since in the meantime, we've been through a much more gloomy phase, but I would not, I would not um, uh, push out. I, I wouldn't, ex uh, what am I saying? Um, um, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that, that scenario one happens. Um, I think as far as um, scenario three is concerned, um, you've got to ask yourself, you know, if we have another climate catastrophe, everyone will suddenly stop worrying about um, the uh, uh, 
the, the virus, which let's face it, isn't it any, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not very nice, but it's, it's there's, there's been much worse viruses around the place. Um, and start worrying about rising sea levels and that sort of thing. So I, I would tread very, very carefully on that one if, if I was looking at strategic decisions. I think we, as I said at the beginning, the reason I called this coronavirus, um, climate change, and um, uh, the, the I4 technology was because these are all equally important and we, we need to look at them all together and not not lose the, the perspective of the whole lot you know um we, uh, will the market capitalization of shipping companies lower the net asset uh, with uh, okay uh, yeah um, market caps are below net nav do you see large-scale consolidation and mergers uh during the downturn I don't know. My impression is, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not that close to the uh, U.S. markets, but um, I am very, um, uh, you know, I'm a little bit concerned. Uh, no, let me back up here. Sorry, I'm having a, 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 a double take moment. I, I don't think the capital markets are there that much for shipping in the states at the moment you guys out there are all in there all the time so you can stack that opinion away with the millions of other opinions i'm giving you and you'll judge whether it's right or not but i uh, i i think that buying um, a public company right now i mean if i was going to buy anything i think i'd rather gamble on carnival frankly um because at least you've got, I don't know, I haven't seen the share price today, but it's, um, you know, you've got a very big business with a lot of value added behind that. Um, whereas, you know, ship values, they could get stuck in a trough, you know, who knows? So I, I think the answer to that is, um, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm making a bit of a meal out of this, aren't I? I I'm not that positive in the answer to that particular question. But uh, it is, in the UK, it's getting on a bit. So um, forgive me for not being as concise as I should be. Um, uh, oh, yes, here's, here's a question from uh, Julian Bay Ray. Hi, Julian. I'm impressed that you've got in on the neck. Um, do you see any increased advantage or disadvantage if ships were to be multitask purpose in their cargo passenger functions? History somewhat repeating itself especially in short sea shipping? Um, well, I will say it again. I have to say the questions are, I mean, uh, are, are really uh, interesting on this. I'm sitting here, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm struggling on to answer them all, but I, I'm really enjoying it because these are all the questions I wish I could answer myself or could ask myself. I, I would say, Julian, over the years that um, the, the, the holy grail for ship owners is the multi-purpose ship, you know. Um, the, the, they used to say tankers that fly was in, in the great oil crisis of the 70s. That was the joke, you know, we, we get a tanker that could fly. Um, but 
that I would say most of the time they haven't, it hasn't worked all that well when you tried ships on the whole recently have tended to work best as single purpose vessels. Um, the, the classic effort to multi-purpose was the ore oiler, which was a massive investment run in the late 1970s, in the early 1970s, and a big fleet of combined carriers were built on the very solid logic that you could take um, oil on one leg and then you could take um, dry cargo on a second leg and you had very little dead freight or time in ballast. And that worked perfectly until you got a fleet of ships that was so big that the minute um, the oil market went up, the combined carriers would move into the oil market and kill off the uh, tanker market. And then when the dry cargo market went up, they moved back again. So instead of having the best of both worlds, you got the worst of both worlds. And also the design of the ships didn't work very well, which is a secondary factor. They were difficult to clean. The chargers didn't like them. Um, now, Clavenus has had a go at this recently. There are hardly any left now, and they're trying to, they've ordered some uh, combined carriers, and they say that they're doing very well with them. So that's working well on that scope. In terms of the other flexibility, um, for many years, cargo liners traded the empire, and they were wonderfully flexible. They were the ships that could pick up your cargo in um, Sunderland and take it to uh, Malaysia direct. Um, they were small, they had to be to get into the small ports. They carried passengers, they carried bulks, they carried uh, oil and uh, liquids in deep tanks. Uh, they were incredibly expensive and they were very slow and difficult to handle cargo. I mean, what really motivated McLean's success in containerization, if you had to pick one thing, it was the fact that you, you couldn't get your cargo through the ports because the ports were trying to unload multi-purpose ships. So the question here is, can somebody come up with a multi-purpose ship which um, would add value? Um, and I think the area where this is, it's, it's not quite an answer to this question, but what I would love to see is Uber of the seas where, you know, the, the great big um, 2,300 TU, um, sorry, 23,000 TU container ship comes into a central distribution port, port um, Algeciras or Lava, wherever it is in Europe, discharges all its cargoes. And then there was a whole sort of Uber service of small ships, which would be, um, bidding to pick up the parcels of containers coming off and deliver them direct to the closest port um, to the, the person to whom they're consigned. So instead of taking the container um, to Southampton and then putting it on a lorry up to Aberdeen, you would um, put it straight onto a container ship, which would go direct, a small container ship that would go up to Aberdeen. And the problem here is, you really need to do that. You need very, very good access to the cargo because you know every if you if if you get into Aberdeen and the car and the container is at the bottom of is at the bottom of the hold, then you've got to move masses of cargoes to get at it. And I think there's there's 
clever design opportunities there, which would make it easier to access. Well, for example, a very good example is NYK's new um, concept ship, the zero carbon ship 2050, I think it is now. That actually has um, under deck holes with special cargo handling equipment so that it can handle under deck cargo separately from on deck. So they've tried to solve that problem but um it's that's an expensive ship and it's not not something you could do uber with so um uh, the answer julian is that i think in principle it, it it is much needed and would be fantastic in practice the modern shipping industry has always got stuck on the product on the cost and cargo handling side which is where you run into problems with these versatile ships. And, um, but maybe we'll all be going on holidays on banana ships to, um, to the Caribbean in the future, you know, and, uh, and because there'll only be a few people on the ship, you know, and you get sunbathed on the deck. Uh, so I, I'll, go for, I'll go for banana carriers, okay? <laughs> um, Lana Hodgson, do you see any increase in advantage? Oh, I've already, I thought I'd just done that one. I thought that was. Um, yeah, I've actually, um, hi guys, I just had a, a text from Nicholas and uh, I must say, I, I, uh, I, I just am so overwhelmed by the questions that you asked. I think they're fantastic. I could go on talking as like all good economists I could go on talking all night but Nicholas says that, that, that they booked two hours and uh, we're sort of coming to the end of it um, and I really do think that probably um, I'm slightly running out of steam now um, I think it's a it's a wise man that quits when he's ahead um, so uh, um, I um, I think probably I'm going to uh, suggest that we store the questions and um, maybe we can come back another time when we're all feeling a bit livelier. But uh, so I think on, on that note, um, I, uh, I, I'd like to thank you so much. Um, great to chat. Um, and uh, I, I think the glad the questions have been positive and as well as I think we've got a good balance there so I wish you all a very happy evening if you're in Europe or um, a, a pleasant afternoon if, if you're in the, in the USA uh, elsewhere and thank you so much for your time really appreciate it uh, take care now bye-bye be thank safe you, it's always a pleasure to have you with us oh, and we thank everyone for joining the webinar Okay, thanks, honey. Thanks, honey. Take care. Now. Thank you. Bye, Martin.